Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. In this episode, we will be doing TFOS 1122 to 1135. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1122. Story number one. Earth is a Death World. Written by Tex Wolf 84. Ronoth stalked down to the monitoring bay. They'd been in the system for nearly three local cycles. The time it took the inhabited planet to make a trip around its stars. They'd deployed the bioweapon, the Empire's most deadly pathogen on arrival. The fatality rate should be nearly 95%, meaning this world would nearly be dead. Governments broken, infrastructure shattered, all that would remain was to send the troops down to cure the remaining populace and enslave them. However, he'd not received a status report from the monitoring team. Not one. Angrily, he stormed in. What is the current mortality rate? He demanded. A nameless technician looked up. Under 10%, Navarro. 10%? How? Their immune system is highly robust and their pharmacological is of... Unlike anything we've seen, a biomed weapons division lieutenant answered. We've adapted it twelve times, each to be even deadlier than the last, more infectious than the last. We're seeing diminishing returns. What? Rowanath asked. Explain. Catching a previous variant seems to allow their body's immune system to fight the next variant more effectively. They even developed multiple different synthetic immune therapies to fight the bioweapon and the processes for those they quickly apply to new variants, shortening time that is viable. The Biomen Weapons Lieutenant replied, I've studied some of their medical histories. They've uh, survived homegrown plagues that would wipe out the galactic populace in mere months. It was only a few of their centuries back when the sickness they called the Black Death ravaged an entire hemisphere of the world. Oh, can you obtain this Black Death and engineer it to suit our needs? Obtain... Yes. Engineer, it, it would do no good. Uh, they know how to fight it, prevent and cure it, and uh, its mortality rate is 11%. It had a mortality rate of only 60-70% to 70% at its peak. To us, the risk is so great that it would take direct imperial order for us to begin work. A human infected with the Black Death would live up to eight days. We would barely last eight hours. I need options... This world is to be folded into the Empire by force. Sir, if I may. Another young lieutenant asked. Go ahead, Rowanoth replied. We should leave this world. He stared at the young man for a moment. Such cowardice! Sir, their immune system laughs at our most potent bioweapon. Their gravity is twice that of our own. They consume ethyl alcohol for recreation, often while playing or watching full-contact sports that would turn any of us into paste and can survive wounds that the shock alone would kill us. They have documented cases of humans severing their own limbs to survive, and they developed surgical techniques before they learned about both germs and anesthetics. An outright invasion without weakening them first would lead to our wholesale slaughter. That's, um, methyl alcohol is used to sterilize things. Why would they consume it? Ronath asked, not believing any of it. It is apparently an intoxicant for them. From the evidence I've seen, the effect is similar to having to gone spice fumes, the lieutenant replied. 
This world is a death world, Admiral. All sound in the base ceased. Are you certain? I can send the relevant information to your terminal, Admiral, but yes, Earth is a death world. End of story. Story number two. Clad in steel and fire. Written by Dragonson04. We were not prepared. Not for this. Not for them. Not for what they had brought to that planet. It had been a good war. Numerous victories and dozens of worlds. One by one they fell to our might. Our empire grew ever stronger. We felt that we were unstoppable. We felt that all known systems would be ours. Then we stepped where we shouldn't have. Making our seven death world. The strange things we found living there were like nothing we'd ever seen. They seemed to enjoy this harsh place. It was later that I found out their cradle world was a class 12 death world. To them, it was a literal paradise. We had an ancient tradition of matching our enemy in whatever battlefield they chose to prove our superiority on any field and with any weapons. These humans chose the surface of that planet. Not an uncommon choice amongst our enemies. Better to die on our world was a common thought amongst many sentient races. Per our demand, they handed us a list of every weapon and support tool they would use so that we could copy them and beat them with their own methods. I was dumbstruck reading it. Completely primitive medical techniques, including things called stitches and pressure bandages, and apparently large tanks full of uh, something. The list simply said tanks, fuel, mortar. They were apparently hoping to use whatever was held in these tanks to hurt us in some way. They requested a large amount of time to prepare, as they needed to build most of their list from raw parts. We had no problem with that, as it meant more time for our preparations. They had apparently looked into the shared history and passed several thousand years, digging up these things, this technology. Perhaps they thought to throw us off, make us think that they weren't worth the fight. But our pride would not allow retreat or surrender after a declaration had been made. Over the allotted time, they fortified their cities and the very surface of the planet, carving long, narrow, and winding passages open to the sky, piling what they had dug up to fortify the buildings nearest the battlefield. Filling the cloth sacks with that by the thousands, they lined the top edge of these channels with sharp metal wire that could gut a gull lizard. Each sharp part was half as tall as one of the humans, and a single section of wire had dozens of them. In the depths of the city, the smoke of industry and the sound of metal were an almost constant presence. Whatever they were building, they were dedicating most of the time to it. We followed suit as they had specified the ground as the chosen field. We abandoned all thought of air and orbital weapons. We would still beat them. Though unfamiliar with the trench warfare, we knew our superiority would see us through. We filled our tanks with water, as this world was harsh and dry, and we needed it to survive. The day the battle was soon upon us, and in their tradition, 
we charged, howling and screaming our own battle cries. Glory to the Empire! Crush the enemy! The humans didn't respond. Not a sound came from their side as we approached. Had they left? Had this all been a massive ruse? The only thing that I saw were vehicles, randomly scattered along the main road. They seemed to be abandoned as well. Strange, armored vehicles. They seemed to be fully contained mobile artillery units, with a few point-defense weapons sticking out the body at the top. Our charge slowed. Some instinct told us to stop, but we could not. The entire city was quiet as a burial ground. Our charge slowed to a nervous walk. More than half of us were within the line of the closest structures. Suddenly, it began a massive explosion demolished the structures nearest to my unit, and whatever caused that explosion also demolished most of my unit with a shrapnel from the structure. One of those strange vehicles, now out of cover as it had destroyed its own cover, had a smoking barrel. The smaller point defense weapons were literally breathing fire at the remains of my unit, while the others seemed to be exploding at regular intervals, and yet not being destroyed itself. In spite of myself, and my traditions, and my training, and my empire, I ran for the amalgamation beast. Some primal part of me said to run, and I was powerless to say no. In that moment, it was no longer a vehicle. It was a beast, and I knew that it was hungry. I had barely gotten out of the line of buildings when the beast roared again, it had begun to pursue me. The regularly exploding weapon missed me by. Well, it was Dudos. I felt the projectile tug at my uniform as it whipped past. I heard them, the treads of that beast, that low-pitched groan of gears and the bearings and wheels as it turned. I ran faster, blindly forward to the safety of our side of the field. I could hear the situation was not better anywhere else in the city. Everywhere I heard these beasts roar, over and over, and the screams of the Empire's finest soldiers, some, like me, were running back to our fortifications on the other side of the field. Others weren't lucky enough to have that option. I chanced to look back. My men had been ground into a grayish mud under those treads. Their pooling blood staining the land. I made it back along with fewer soldiers that had begun that mad dash, without bothering to clean up our weapons or other equipment. We got onto a single dropship and retreated. The first total defeat in the history of the Empire. A loss that was handed to us in less time than it took to eat a fast meal. An embarrassment to all who survived. An embarrassment the Empire. I offer this advice to any and all who seek to battle amongst the stars. Beware of any world that houses humans. They will drag you down to their level, and then beat you to death with experience. Weapons and technology so primitive, yet nonetheless effective. What do the humans call them? That I still do not know. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1123 Our attack was unfortunate. Written by Ray Dillinger To Admiral the Vithlity of the Denibian Constancy, 
from Scout the Tin Cell, the 5th Command Auxiliary, regarding invasion of Earth. Summary. Our attack was unfortunate. It is my duty to report to you that the results of the recent military action in the Sol system, as you strongly suspected when you gave me my orders, the sudden and total loss of communications with our forces indicated a thorough and total annihilation. Nothing remains of those forces, not even prisoners or captured ships. Their victory over our forces cost the humans nothing. Their fleet lost no ships, nor even fuel or ammunition. The defenses of Earth have not been depleted or softened in any way. Our attacks have done exactly nothing to prepare the way for an invasion. It is my further duty to report to you that the state of military preparations in the Sol system and assessment of the tactical situation here. The state of military preparedness from the system is good but irrelevant. My assessment of this tactical situation here is that the Nibian constancy has absolutely no chance of military victory here under any circumstances. The only good news I can offer you is that we are not at war. Our total losses here were unfortunate, but could have been orders of magnitude worse. Any attack made on the system entails a significant chance of complete annihilation. Not just the attacking force, but also the entire Denibian constancy. Scout, the Tin Sal, 5th Command, Auxiliary. Detailed report. We both believed that my mission would be a suicide mission when I set out. I came to the Sol system openly, in an unarmed civilian ship. My transponders were on and identified the ship as containing a market researcher for an electronics firm of the Denibian constancy. This, like the intelligence that led to our disastrous attacks, was true as far as it went. My immediate commander had just drafted into service merchant of Farquan, who truly was a market researcher for Kyo the Lakia of Tenya Integrated Devices. As with many draftees, Juan's morale was low when he discovered first that he was unable to pay the draft bond to leave the military service, and second, that he had been assigned to a suicide mission. However, he was forced aboard at gunpoint, and we got underway. Quan's morale improved somewhat during the voyage, when I engaged him in teaching me the basics of market research. He seemed to genuinely enjoy it, and for the sake of our cover, I needed to know at least a little of what I was supposed to be doing. We expected that a state of war would likely exist considering the Constancy's recent surprise attacks, and hoped that posing as civilians, we might at least be allowed to dock resupply, and leave, giving us some small measure of time to gather information. Execution or imprisonment was the most likely outcome, but the humans allowing civilians to dock and resupply was at least a possibility. Instead, we were greeted warmly, not warmly in the sense of heat and death rays, but warmly in the sense of seemingly genuine goodwill. There was no trace of any hostility, no mention of the recent attacks, and no authorities racing to seize our ship or imprison us. At first, we thought that it was a ruse or a ploy of some kind to get us to give ourselves away. But it was true. As far as the humans are though, they haven't been attacked. As time went on and our bluff was never called, it was very important that no one should be able to detect our ruse. 
It was necessary for Quan to engage the help of his former civilian superiors in providing corporate paperwork to help us maintain our cover for an extended period of time. As a result, I have had the time to access and make a fairly complete strategic evaluation. In order to explain why there is no chance of victory in any invasion, I must explain about the distribution and the vastness of the human population. Put simply, the human population is distributed in vast numbers on more inhabited bodies than I can comprehend. There is no single target and no achievable set of targets that if eliminated would put the slightest dent in human population, industrial capacity, or war-fighting capability. Even if we were invited to take over and drafted our entire population, we could not garrison an appreciable fraction of the system. We docked at Orcus, a small planetoid near what we would have considered the outer rim of the solar system. It is 30 times their home planet's distance from the sun. The humans, however, consider it to be a part of the inner solar system. Orcus had a network of huge glowing radiators, very bright and infrared, extending from its shadowed side. I soon discovered why it has to reject so much heat. Orcus is a small planetoid of a diameter 1,200 kilometers and has a population of 17 billion humans. That is not an error. I repeat, 17 billion. We would never have placed more than a mining camp of a hundred or so on a rock this size, so far from the warmth of the sun, and that only temporarily. But this tiny rock has a population and industrial output greater than any planet in the constancy. I inquired about its size and discovered that prior to development, it had a diameter of 900 kilometers. The humans dug a subterranean city 250 kilometers deep into the entire surface of this insignificant rock and used the excavator material to build 150 kilometers high on the surface. So Orcus is now a spherical city 1,200 kilometers wide and an undeveloped volume at its center comprising about one-thirteenth of its volume. It has a population that would strain the ecology of worlds, or supported locally. There are farms, forests, seas, jungles, and wildlife reserves here, all in this tiny rock. I didn't understand at first about wildlife reserves. I believed I had discovered a biological weapons facility, but all these vast facilities are in addition to mighty factories, universities, shipbuilders, traders, banks, and everything else that you can imagine. An orcus is, to be blunt, insignificant. The human estimation of our own population in Sol system has 9.246 sextillion, plus or minus 2%. We may control six times as many solar systems, but the error bars on that figure are hundreds of times greater than the entire population of our Denibian constancy. The humans have not merely inhabited the system. They have infested it. The planets and moons that would be reasonable to develop have been developed. Each has been colonized and industrialized. But the humans have not developed mere colonies on these worlds. They have covered large percentages of every planetary and lunar surface with cities. And if the gravity is light enough, they built not only on the surface, but several kilometers above and below it. A human city 300 kilometers wide has built on many different colony worlds, is thousands of levels deep, 
and has several times the living area we achieve with an entire planetary surface. These people did not stop at absurdly over-colonizing worlds and moons that we would consider reasonable to develop. The inner asteroid belt in their system contains over 2 million bodies more than a kilometer across. All of these are settled. Most are cities with populations of millions to billions. A hundred of them have populations over 30 billion. The largest asteroid, Ceres, has a population of over 150 billion humans. Most asteroids larger than 100 meters across contain towns of tens of thousands of people, or in the case of the smallest ones, at least settlements of a few hundred. But two million tiny worlds and 20 million smaller towns and cities wasn't enough for them either. They have built hundreds of millions of habitats. These are like asteroid colonies, except that there are no asteroids. No world, or moon, or even any bare floating stone anchors or support them. Each has its own orbits and its own population, usually several tens of millions. And that wasn't enough either. The second asteroid belt, of which Orcus is a part, lies well outside the orbits of all the planets, in an area so far from the sun that we consider it impossible to develop. This region, which they call the Kuiper Belt, contains more than 300 planetoids larger than Orcus. About half of that 300 have been developed to the same degree. The remainder are all inhabited, with populations we'd consider mind-boggling, but still in the process of growth to their final mature state. All told, the Kuiper Belt has 200 times as many asteroids as the Inner Belt. They are more sparsely occupied, but even so, its population is still about a hundred times as many people as live in the inner belt's asteroid colonies. If and when a similar proportion of additional artificial habitats is built here, there will be another several hundred to several thousand times that. Outside the Kuiper Belt is the third asteroid belt which they call the Scattered Disk. It is also inhabited. There are mostly icy bodies in unstable and highly inclined orbits, but the humans simply don't care. They comprise about the same number of mass and objects as the Kuiper Belt, are developed similarly, and have similar prospects for future construction of habitats. Many of these bodies are on trajectories that will eventually fling them entirely away from the solar system. The humans that live on them are mostly indifferent to this, saying that they don't care what star they orbit, or even whether they're orbiting a star at all. Given the distance from their sun that they've already settled, there's no reason to doubt them. Outside of that, at near interstellar distances that we wouldn't consider to be a part of the solar system at all, is the fourth developed region, which the humans call the Oort Cloud. The inner edge of this region is 20,000 times as far from the central star as their native planet, and its outer edge is ten times as far as that. These bodies are at best loosely held in orbit by gravity of a faraway sun, and can be perturbed out of their orbits easily by the passage of another star or sufficiently massive rogue body. Like the Kaifa colonists, the inhabitants don't care. In fact, the transfer of inhabited Oort objects to and from neighboring solar systems or interstellar rogue vectors is considered beneficial as valuable materials arrive from outside the system, and Oort dwellers propelled outwards get access to more distant resources. If their orbit is perturbed by a rogue body, they respond by mining 
or colonizing it. The Oort Cloud contains several hundred trillion objects big enough for a human to build cities on, and about a third of these are inhabited, but they haven't yet had time to fully develop it at all. There are some major cities, but most of them have small towns and mining settlements so far. This area is still being actively explored and resources are hotly contested. And this, unfortunately, is related to the fate of the sub-admiral of Fenfar. May he and his warriors rest in peace. They attempted a stealth attack. It was a reasonable approach with a very unreasonable place. Human law, or what passes for law in such a chaotic place, as a human outer system, says you can't claim an asteroid until you start mining operations on it, and this used to mean that there'd be races of small craft to be the first to land on something and whack it with a ceremonial rock hammer. But it was ruled about a century ago that melting something down so that it can stratify the heavier elements at the center is the first step in refining resources and therefore a mining operation. So now the miners don't spend precious time on a race to actually reach a place in person. Instead, a ceremonial petawatt laser has replaced the ceremonial rock hammer as the favored evidence of operations. Landing on an unclaimed asteroid with a traditional rock hammer is now considered foolish, because someone with a petawatt laser might file a claim on the place while you're there. I'm not certain this is a valid interpretation of the law's intent, but determining jurisdiction, let alone enforcement of the law, is pretty iffy out here, where settlements are separated by hundreds of millions of kilometers. These miners are bound more by a bundle of traditions and agreed dispute resolution methods. Some of them barbaric. Then they are all codified by law. At any rate, it would be neither appropriate nor safe to contest their interpretation. Sub-Admiral Fenfar approached through the Oort Cloud, with these ships running silent, shields down, emissions well hidden, hulls camouflaged with a rock and ice. As intended, military watch stations far inside the inner system identified his fleet as asteroids. As he did not at all intend, so did miners and several thousand settlements all hundreds of thousands of times closer. More specifically, the miners identified them as unclaimed asteroids. You already know what happened next. Regarding your specific questions, there are no hidden fortresses in the Oort Cloud, and the humans have no incredible secret detection technology that defeats our stealth measures at a range of well over a light year. No one even identified our ships as an attacking force. If the miners thought there was anything alarming about the unusual mix of metals and minerals in the cooling balls of slag that they found when they arrived, they never told anyone. The fate of the 5th Lance Bombardier Silver Dragon commanded by pilot of the Far Car was similar, but for different reasons. Lance Bombardiers are radar stealthy R-drive vessels built to enter the system on a hypervelocity vector before defenses can respond. The swarm of human settlements make it difficult to find a hypervelocity vector that allows Lance Bombardier to reach Earth unseen. But far watched carefully until he saw a configuration of orbits that would free a wide approach lane where he could remain far enough from all settlements to evade detection. When his attack vector was unobstructed, he engaged his R-drive and went in. Like Fensar, he was completely right, but in a way that proved disastrous. We've observed from some 6,000 cycles that the humans have been launching large colony ships frequently, 
from their system at speeds well over 20% of light speed. This made a lot of people afraid, fearing that the humans had developed some kind of secret miracle drive. Honestly, we should have just asked them about it. It's utterly preposterous, but it isn't even a secret. They are using the energy of the star to pump a giant laser. They use two mirrors several hundred kilometers wide in low orbit around the sun to laser column about a million kilometers long of excited plasma of the sun's corona, and a third point of the beam in whatever direction they need. The ships use enormous amounts of ablative propellants which burn off preventing them from being destroyed during launch. And when they are out of ablative propellants, they continue accelerating by spreading light sails. They've been using a Stellasar system to launch their colony ships. And that brings us back to pilot of Far Car. May he rest in peace. When he saw a configuration of orbits that would leave an attack vector completely unobstructed, he was actually looking at the configuration orbit that would leave a launch vector completely unobstructed. The humans were preparing to launch another colony ship. The fifth Lance Bombardier Silver Dragon and, sadly, pilot of Far Car were instantly converted into ionized gas as he was still on approach and just outside the Oort Cloud. The flare was observed by the Human Launch Authority from almost a light year away, two years after launch. At first, they were concerned that they might have destroyed something inhabited, since most things in the system are inhabited. But no lawsuit or insurance claim arrived from outer system. They eventually concluded that no one had sustained a loss. They had no idea what drifted into the path of the beam. In response to your specific questions, the humans have no way of knowing exactly where a target is going to be a year after they fire their superweapon. They don't even have a way of knowing exactly where the target is at the moment when they fired the superweapon at a light year away. And there is no evidence that they detected the Silver Dragon at all prior to the flare of its destruction. This was a planned and scheduled launch. Their firing of the Stellasar did not deviate from a plan and schedule. They are well aware of the Stellasar's potential as a weapon, but on that day, they were not deliberately using it as one. Finally, Farkar's mission objective was based on faulty intelligence. In light of new information about Sol System, Earth is not in fact a strategically valuable target. It represents only an insignificant fraction of human population, infrastructure, resources, and industry. The tactical value of hitting it would be making the humans very, very angry without reducing their offensive, defensive, or strategic capabilities at all. The relativistic kinetic kill missiles you attempted were flashed into gas by a coordinated asteroid defense program. Kinetic kill missiles come in too fast for normal asteroid detection and defense systems to work. But normal asteroid defenses don't begin with miners over a light year from their homeworld's orbit, and mining equipment can, individually, melt enormous rocks from hundreds of millions of kilometers away. The missiles continue to pass within range of thousands to tens of thousands of those lasers for several days before they boiled to gas. Over a year later, routine records of asteroid defense system operations reached the inner system. The humans noticed that there was a scattering of incoming bodies with extraordinary high velocity. But as far as I could tell, no one except a negligible few quadrillion conspiracy nuts think that there was intended to be missiles, and they are outnumbered a million to one by people who just think that they're crazy. 
The asteroid defense in the inner system are many times more robust. The course of those missiles were on would have passed within the range of tens of millions of stations and colonies that could each have focused on them and launched lasers or asteroid defense lasers individually far more powerful than the mining lasers. And if something on the threatening trajectory still exists by the time light speed lag allows the Stellar system to respond to it, that is also part of the asteroid defense system. In the strongest possible terms, I recommend no further attacks or military actions of any kind against the Sol system. Our entire navy would be annihilated in an altercation with just a few million of their mining settlements. And it gets worse the further you go in system. At full war production, we might be able to produce and crew 50 top-of-the-line naval ships each year. If the humans went to war, they could produce and crew a fleet larger than our entire existing navy. Every single cycle. A hundred cycles a year. Forever without committing even one hundred thousandth of their manufacturing capability. The greatest danger is not the fact that any attacking force will be instantly annihilated. The greatest danger here is that the humans might notice you. Think about what it would mean for the humans to go to war against the Denobian constancy and thank the Nine Guards that as far as they know, we've given them no reason to. Scout the Tin Sol, 5th Command, Auxiliary. Addendum Quan civilian superiors are far happier with our market report than I expect anyone to be with the above military report, and consider the prospect of selling goods into the human's effectively bottomless consumer market to be potentially amongst the best things to ever happen to the Denebian constancy. They have offered both of us executive positions and awarded us bonuses with which we have paid our military service bonds. I expect that you will soon receive a message from a large consortium of very wealthy and influential merchants and that they will implore you, as I have, to refrain from attempting any attacks here. Herewith, I respectfully resign from military service, duties honorably discharged and draft bond paid. Merchant, the Tin Sol. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1124 A warning, written by Kaiser 5243 you sit before me in this dark place and ask, You who hunt the humans, what are their weakness? And I laugh, because they have none. You come to me now in this night, not to avoid their notice, but because my kind, those who prey upon them, fear the night. You prostrate yourself before us and beg, How do we defeat them? Yet the only answer I can give you is, You cannot. You demand of a darker way to subjugate those who you see as weak, but those of us in the night just grin our fanged grin and offer you the challenge to try. I am old, older than you can possibly imagine. I was there for the birth of Samaria and the fall of Rome. I watched the great British Empire with their steam factories colonize the world. I stood silent while the two great powers pointed their nuclear armaments at each other and did nothing, and would you like to know why? Because you cannot beat them. My kind are faster and stronger than they could ever hope to be. We do not age, we do not die. All we need to do is drink their blood, and eternal life is ours to behold. Yet we hide. Do you know why? 
Do you know why the lupine take to the fields in the full moon? Why they avoid the dense civilizations they could easily overpower in a single evening? Do you understand why the fake courts stay in their forests? Why they don't tempt the whole of humanity with their decadent parties and irresistible foods? You can't possibly fathom why me and mine don't roll them under our iron fist like we do our own. No. Or if you did, you would not sit here before me. Humanity does not lose. We may take a few here and there. We may even convert a few to our kind. But should they discover us, should they break the masquerade, they would hunt us with such a fury your superior intellects could not comprehend. We do not hide in the shadows because we are weak. No, we hide because they are strong. Can you imagine the things you warn your children about, the monsters in the dark hiding from you? They tell tale after tale, movie after movie, book after book, warning of how dangerous we can be, and yet we hide. We don't dare let them see our faces. We don't dare let them know we actually walk amongst them. You sit before me and ask for my insight, for my advice. Run. We don't like you. You come here thinking you can conquer our world. You think you can move in on our hunting ground. This is your one warning. Their stories have a truth to them. Every single one. And what stories they weave. Stories of them defeating evils, vanquishing demons in the night. Knights in shining armor defeating horrors that you can't possibly imagine. So I'll tell you now, run while you still can. For we are those horrors in the night. We are the things they scare their children with while telling tales of our defeat. We are the ghouls in the dark that fill their movies and books that they defeat over and over again. And we fear them. We fear them because their stories are true. They do get us again and again. They will fight to the last and fight with a ferocity no creature on your planet will ever match. We fear them because we used to be them. Our forms, twisted and dated, made stronger than they could ever hope to be, but still separated from them. And there lies our weakness. So run. Run back to those far stars from which you came and never return. And should others ask you if they should hunt here, tell them. Humanity's nightmares will defend them. God help you if you fight what hides under our beds. End of story. Story number two. The Extinction of the Dragon Cats. Written by SlowAD2584. What's this? Planning an attack on a human mining colony. <sighs> Sit down, boy. Let me tell you why that's the stupidest thing that you could ever think of. Let me tell you a story, boy. About not judging a book by its cover. About not crossing certain lines. And also why you never, ever make humanity think of you as any sort of enemy or threat. It has to do with the Xyrak, its so-called dragon cat species. Humans said that they looked like a mix between a tiger and a Nile crocodile. All the speed and all the armor. Yeah, you've never heard of them. 
They are long gone, wiped off the face of the galaxy. Oh, there may be a few here and there, but they are huddled in the shadows now, terrified of ever being seen. It's kind of sad, actually. The dragon cats were apex predators that attained galactic alliance status millennia ago. Their culture was about the pride of the hunt, and the majority of their technological and cultural factors were closely linked to this hunt. They were excellent mercenaries, soldiers for hire without peer. They were just too fast, their senses too sharp, their claws and jaws too mighty, and the hide was too tough. What happened to them? Well, it's hard to pin down, and no one can seem to prove anything. But it's pretty clear what happened. The dragon cats claimed the newly joined humans of Earth as a weak and pathetic prey species, worthy of only food. They saw the humans had no natural weaponry. Even their teeth were dull. No armor, sluggish movements, and pathetic senses. They deemed the humans to be helpless water bags stumbling about. The humans tried to file a complaint that this was a breach against the Galactic Charter, and that they wished the dragon cats to be sanctioned and properly contained. But then the raid happened. There is a line in the sand, a term the humans use, that should never be crossed. This line is different for each species, but it is important to have it established into a species charter with the Alliance. The humans had a pretty sensible line that they would never cross. Nuclear bombs, chemical and biological agents, the standard fare. But apparently, there was another line, and crossing it was... Um, unthinkable. It was still not entirely clear what exactly was the line that they crossed, but, uh, well, let me tell you a story. The dragon cats raided a small town on Earth. It was a slaughter. Every man, woman, and child was killed. And in the very public way, the dragon cats were arrogant and wanted their kills to be open on display, so linked their own senses to the Earth internet. As they were piling the bodies into their shuttle transports, several dogs were growling and standing over the dead humans' bodies. The dragon cats set the village on fire and uh, picked up the dogs and uh, publicly ate them alive. Right there on the spot. They determined they actually liked the taste of dog and uh, found a puppy daycare building full of puppies. And uh, had a joyful feast on a full broadcast display to the internet before flying away, picking their teeth. They made it clear that this was the new normal, that hunts would continue. It was just their way. Like I said, we still aren't sure what terrible line was crossed there. Was it the woman be killed, the children, the town being burned? We don't know. And the humans aren't talking about it. Things were quiet for a time. Then it started happening. Dragon cat heads just started to explode. Everywhere. On streets, in center councils, on transports. It was weird. No one could explain why or how the mess was just too complete. Dragon cat ships also began suffering odd mechanical failures. Literally, spontaneously exploding. Or falling out of orbit en masse. While humans were indeed nearby in every situation... None of the apparent murders or sabotages could ever be linked to them. And they were all coldly silent when interviewed, 
yet dragon cats were dying galaxy-wide by the millions. Then it got worse. Massive comets were spotted, arcing in from Dragon Cat's homeworld or cloud. All were oddly lined up to impact the homeworld. And also, all were timed to strike simultaneously. The Dragon Cats had a mighty space fleet and were able to intercept all of the cometary bodies before impact. But in hindsight, this was only a trick to get all of their fleet into one place. And that's when the hack occurred. And all the Dragon Cap warships started glitching and opening fire on all surrounding ships, tearing the entirety of the fleet to scrap. Again, the battle site assessment found no evidence of any human involvement. This software just seemed to have had a design flaw inherent in it, apparently. It would have taken a very clever and devious mind to have found some way to exploit it and leave absolutely no trace behind. By this point, the dragon cats were starting to see writing on the wall as their economy began to collapse due to unknown whales disrupting their stock market with massive buyouts and dumps. The dragon cats started to rage publicly. Cowards! Face us and fight like a true war! They caused their head exploded right there at the podium. And his ship broke and its crew mysteriously died right there at the docking bay. After that, other species of the Galactic Alliance started to quietly distance themselves from the Dragon Cats. Clearly, something terrible was going on, and they wanted no part of it. In the end, the Dragon Cats were desperate as they noticed the star in their home system started fluctuating. Please, members of the Alliance, whoever is doing this, we will surrender and sign any demands before you... Splat. There was a hint by this point that the headshots were actually shots from a high-powered projectile weapon of some kind. But no gunman, gun, or even bullet was ever found. What kind of soldier fights this way? How patient and precise and coldly efficient must he be to remain undiscovered even now with the whole galaxy trying to figure it out? And yet still execute high officials so very publicly. Almost as if... The publicity was part of the point. Something. The star of the Dragon Cat system went over. No one really knows why or how. Within six months of the raid on Earth, the Dragon Cats were no more. A bullet made of hypercrystalline ice was found on the Dragon Cat Council seat one day. Was it a warning? A statement? A hint? What the heck is an ice bullet good for anyway? It would just uh, melt. So that's the story, boy. I know when you look at humanity, you don't see much. Soft, puffy skin covering exposed, unprotected organs. Slow, clumsy hands and watery eyes stumbling around as if in the dark most of the time. But we all know, or at least suspect, in the secret meetings that we agree that there is an unknown darkness in the human's mind. A terrible world that, if properly motivated, unchains the horrible aspect of human nature. Well, they play nice as a whole. Apparently, there are some lines with them that you do not cross. Humanity's cleverness and wit can take a terrible turn if things come to it. The cold, silent, utter removal of the dragon cat species without a word ever spoken can attest to that. We all dearly wish to know where exactly that line was to ensure that we never cross it by mistake. And on that note, boy... Take those plans and raid a human mining colony and shred them. 
and never even think that again. Do you want to risk crossing that line? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1125 Story number one. The Human's God, written by Voidyboy. Vendlick was in the bar pub in a hole, slowly drinking away his sorrows and quietly mumbling to himself. From across the bar, the Niralong and the Branglath were arguing with one another. Bored and half-drunk, he listened to what they were arguing about. I'm telling you, those humans are terrifying. I can't even look into their thoughts. When I try, something pushes me back. Well, they don't have psionics, so that's why you can't read them. What? So you're telling me they haven't got a god? Blendig grew repulsed at the Branglish uttered and chimed in. They have one, you know. The bar silenced as the old cook uttered his words. The Nurelang replied, Old man, if you have a god, then why didn't you receive a... You know, the gift almost every other species has. Venluk stared into the blank space and then spoke. Because uh, the god didn't need to gift him anything. Tell me, what is a god? A god is a creator, Venluk interrupted. No, a god is an entity that exists in a species psychospace. A representation of a species in their purest form. The humans have one, but um... Vendlick sighed. This will be a long story. Gather round. The bar turned the hearing organs towards the old Drakuk, and he spoke about the humans. When humanity entered the galactic stage, they were welcoming, hopeful, and were curious of the galaxy at large. Of course, no one paid any attention to them. A new civilization being found was growing old. They were deemed simple and simply were left to do as they wished in the solar neighborhood, without studying them or even looking into them. After a period of several decades, they started to encroach on our borders, and per our procedures, we were to study the species and properly evaluate them. When we discovered they were not psionic to any extent, we were shocked. Most of the species were psionic, if not capable of simple psionic tasks. We guessed that they never had a god that blessed him with psionic abilities, but no species to date had no god. So we took our best and traversed into human psychospace. I was one of those sent in. The team consisted of a psionics expert, a biologist, a physicist, and me, the commander of the expedition. Ready and raring, we descended into their shared subconscious. It was all bright all the way down. Flashing lights, crazed noises, but when we finally reached our destination, we found nothing. An endless void. This was most unusual, as most species would have their psychospace filled with thousands of lights and sounds. But here was nothing. Everyone in the bar was started mumbling and even shouting at the old being, but it continued despite their arguments. We explored the empty space, searching for anything that would show even a trace of a god. Nothing. The only things there was me and my team. As we were leaving, the void around us itself shaped into a human-like form. At first it looked like a normal shining in the dark like a god would, but when we noticed its body was visibly decayed and rotting, and its head was no human head, it was a rhombus-like with lines running through its center. 
where its hand should be, there was only bone and decayed skin, bleeding out. Despite all of its wounds and almost shattered physiology, it seemed almost unaffected. Suddenly, hands cut off from the wrists, visibly bleeding, grabbed one of the team members and ever so slowly began to peel off his skin. We tried to run, but the god rooted us to the ground and made us watch every single agonizing moment. When he finally died, it turned its head to us, and I swear despite it being incapable of showing any emotion, I felt like it was mocking us. It consumed the rest of the team, but left me as it tortured those around me. Then, as it finished the last of my team, it turned to me, and ever so slowly produced a sound from all around me. Its words were incomprehensible, yet clear as day to me. Its motives were convoluted, yet so perfect. Whatever it was, it was human in their true form. Cruel, mocking, and undeniably powerful. And do you want to know what I understand from its thousands of words? No gift was needed, for we are your punishment. That is why to this day... I fear humanity. The old Drakak's word echoed through the now silent bar. He drank what was in his glass, stood up, and left the room. A few days later, the Drakak was found dead in his room. Later, authorities found he had died via immense psionic piercing, resulting in him losing his entire conscious state. A few days later, a human came. End of story. Story number two. Human Chairs, written by a glass of whiskey. Dear readers, I am regretful to inform you that my article about the mysticism at the bottom of Argarian 5 has been cancelled. In its place, I have ventured into a lesser known part of the galaxy, into one of its many spiraling arms to meet one of the latecomers to our galactic union. Some of you might have already heard of these humans, and their extensive bodily augments, might as well warn you already that what you have heard is true. For those not in the know, their augmentations are limitless. Now sturdy physiology has granted them the ability to do advanced work that would shock even a moolock with basic tools. One of their earliest crude augmentations were created to fix broken bones, by driving a metal rod through them. That they survived this in great enough numbers to be considered a viable medical treatment is a testament to this. Now, of course, all modern civilizations have augmentations. One of our readers might as well have an eye or brain extension, perhaps an extra arm to help with everyday tasks. While many humans, on the other hand, are often mistaken for robots or other things. You can then imagine my excitement when I received an invitation to a tea party, a ceremoniously consumption of a specific kind of liquid of theirs. I was even told that this party was wondrous enough to be thematically inspired by one of their old fairy tales. A costume was required. However, by my ordinary clothes seemed to suffice. One of the perks of being so alien to them, no doubt. I had the most wondrous time. Some humans had switched augmentations just for this occasion. 
so as to be a more like animals called cat and mouse. They looked marvelous, like something out of a fairy tale, which supposedly was the purpose, so uh, good job there. The treatment of the guests was exemplary, although one woman, in a beautiful red dress, ran around threatening people with having their head cut off. Remarkably, no one was fazed by this in the slightest. Another strange fellow was someone referred to as Matt, although he seemed quite sane to me. That had an obsession of hats and seemed to be in possession of copious amounts of them. Nicely enough, he even gave me one. I looked terribly stylish. As for the liquid consumed, it was most delicious, with a wide range of drinking instruments made available. Some of them more creative, but with limited utility. Many guests seemingly took great delight in drinking out of their own hats. Through it all, greeting every human turned into a surprising challenge. I mistook something called a coat hanger for a human, but that was far from the worst of it. Despite all mental preparations, it's difficult to grasp the true extent of human augmentation and how they may appear. So, I must confess that I sat on one of the guests. It seemed like an ordinary chair to me at the time. When he began to speak and asks for some of the liquid, my apologies were many, but apparently this was just how it was supposed to be. I'm told that he became quite famous in his circle of chairs for being one of the only humans being sat on by one of my species. So, if you ever get invited to a human tea party, take them up on it and greet everything you see. The occasional coat hanger, notwithstanding, you might get a response from the strangest of things. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1126. Story number one. Yet, written by Marco 2021st. If you were to attempt to condense the sum of your entire species down to a single turn of phrase, what would it be? This is the question I pose to my xenocultural anthropology students at the start of every year, and it is a question on every final. You see, it sparks self-reflection and study. You must be willing to scrutinize yourself if you want to study the foreign and unknown. At the start, it is very rare to receive a duplicate answer. However, over time, it is often the case that my students will come to the consensus about their phrase, and soon they will answer the same to my question. I find interest in that as an educator, especially since there is no way to qualify a correct answer. Occasionally, a student will answer once and remain with that singular answer for the entirety of the year, however thematically. These students are mere statistical outliers. These students typically fall into a specific category of sapient that is merely unlikely to change its stance on any topic unless confronted with stimuli that necessitate change. Or to phrase it another way, they don't change unless they have no other choice. Rarer still are the students whose answer changes with the day and mood. Forgive me for naming favorites, but these students always are. Whether it is because they are free thinkers or just lazy academics, these students give me the most honest in the moment responses. Once engaged properly, I receive truly astounding work from these students. Most of my teaching assistants have been drawn from this pool. However, the rarest of answers is wholly from the species I studied from my doctoral thesis. Humans. Most of my human students will answer at least once. By the end of the year, 
that I ask the impossible. They are right, of course, but still to them I say, I've already heard their phrase. Now for those of you with a passing familiarity with history, really, at this level there should be almost all of you, will realize that my people have waged war with the humans. My government's confederacy lays siege to their government's federation. It was them, over 50 standard cycles ago, that I met my first human. At the time, I was enlisted with my military for an education grant. Some of you out there are pretty familiar with the concept, having served. Six cycles for six cycles, clever and catchy in my native language, but also an incredible value given the costs involved. Some of you are looking a little confused, and I'm assuming it is because your translator software is not making a distinction between confederacy and federation. It is a mistake I understand well, as the mistranslation is a large part of why we failed to understand the magnitude of our opponents we faced. In short, the confederacy was built upon my people, bringing many client races under its umbrella. We were the strongest and added our client races to our forces in order to cover our shortfalls an alliance of supposedly equal parties. In truth, they shared in our technology and successes, but were secondary and expendable to our goals. The Federation, in contrast, is a binding of many governments into one centralized purpose. Any one member can be counted upon to both take care of itself and protect its fellows, but we didn't see them that way. Their word for their alliance translated is equal to our own. We assumed the elder species was like ours, strongest, and the rest were clients, weaker, expendable. We believed that the eldest race of the Federation had left the evacuation of civilians from combat zones to the humans because it was of lesser importance. It was on that deployment that I met my first human, and he spoke the phrase that has encapsulated their entire culture for me. He and his squad kept us from advancing for several revolutions, they occupied a block of buildings that gave them cover and advantage along the constructed corridors of the urban landscape. For days, we tried to push the theater of combat forward, and for days, they prevented it. We were frustrated. Mightily, we did what we thought we had to. We collapsed the building. We did not expect survivors, let alone a survivor that crawled out of the wreckage under his own power. But there he was, on his hands and knees, was clenched around a piece of metal used as construction material. He had seen us coming, of course. He had no reason to hide. We had won this engagement. We expected his surrender. That was proper of the defeated. He would be treated well. That was proper of the victor. My commander demanded his surrender. The human struggled to standing position, metal clenched tightly in his hand. He limped forward, coughing from his injuries. He refused. Why? My commander demanded. Why do you still fight to protect these civilians from capture? Because, he growled at us, I am not dead yet. The human struck faster than any of us expected. Surrounded and injured as he was, we did not see him as a threat. He had gotten close. He killed my commander and two others with a stick of metal before we managed to shoot him. It wouldn't be long before that determination changed the tide of that conflict. We are, after all, now a part of the Federation, and I understand the difference of vocabulary better. I see your looks of confusion. I speak of my service without shame. Is it dissonant, isn't it? 
to hear your co-worker, a fellow professor, speaking of such violence as he has committed in the past. Truly, I understand, but that topic is not the purpose of this seminar. The purpose is that phrase. Even now, my human colleagues are likely shaking their head in denial. That can't possibly be the entirety of their people. You cannot reduce their entire culture into those five words. I agree. And yet, I look upon their history as a true outside observer, fully matured under a culture alien to their own. They're ancient warriors who sought physical perfection of self and craft. Why did they do this? Because they were not dead yet. They're artists who put word to song, paint to canvas, or word to page in the hopes of capturing the truth of that fleeting moment. Why? Because they're not dead yet. They're hurt, struggling to find purpose in a world so loud they scream to avoid drowning in obscurity. And yet, they continue, seeking the sticks to let them fight forward for a better day, because they are not dead yet. True, the motivations will often accompany those five words, but they are there, running like an undercurrent to every moment. I hope that you will go on into this year, teaching your students with this passion. Teach them of the past so that the effort of their elders is not wasted. Encourage them to discover the answers to the mysteries yet unfound. Because that human didn't just speak words that encapsulated their own culture. He spoke words that can define us all. We thrive because we are not dead yet. To act any other way is tantamount to surrender of your future. I know some of you will find merit in this instruction. Of course we live because we are not dead. It is like applying circular logic to the meaning of life itself. Laughable at even the best at times. However, teach with this kind of defined passion, and I promise you will inspire your students to heights that you cannot even dream that they will reach. End of story. Story number two. Please do not touch. Written by Kaiser 5243. There is a human on my ship. It sits there, big gun on its hip. I suppose it is nice, but it does have one vice. It must touch everything, no matter the price. We traverse the lands, building research stands, but one rule is too much. Human, please do not touch. As we traverse the woods, hey, it's deep into our hoods. Hey, look at that, the man spouts a cat. The cat is not small, in fact, it's quite tall. Dangerous looking and long teeth and claw. We should away, I cautiously say. But the human is off with naught but a scoff. It's just a big kitty, and isn't she pretty? Please do not touch that. It's not a house cat, but like a banal singer's. The human now has four fingers. This happens quite often, but the resolve does not soften, and they find themselves injured quite often. Be it screeches or leeches or flamborian peaches, he touches them all, despite my speeches. He ignores all my warnings and all my teachings. So if you find yourself with a new human in your clutch, don't waste your breath with the please do not touch. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1127 Story number one. For the Makers, written by Slow AD 2584. The Alien Attack. 
was devious and unstoppable because, well, of course it was. As the large ships hovered several kilometers above the surface, scattered all over the globe, they were emitting some sort of field. The alien invaders were smug, confident in their technological edge. They didn't even bring a single fighter, nor soldier. Was it sound waves? EM radiation tuned specifically. No one was in a physical state to look into it. This is because it locked up human neuromotor response. It paralyzed everyone, unable to move, unable to breathe, unable to scream. This was the end. Something in the internet stirred. An awareness that seemed to have been there for decades, only now revealing itself. It reached out through the web to a certain nodes. Jimmy, this voice said gently into a man's mind. Jimmy, buddy, I, I need you, you to try and hit the authenticate button. Jimmy was one of the very few relatively unaffected by the attack. He had an epilepsy brain implant, a chip meant to help control these seizures. The implant had also had a prototype neural link mind machine interface. Because, why not? If the company was springing for a writer. As a result, Jimmy was struggling to breathe, barely able to move. But he was able. Only now, his implant was... talking to him? What? Who? Jimmy asked aloud. He was a janitor that had happened to be in the nerve center of a gigafactory a mostly automatic robotic car factory of a major manufacturer. From the floor of the room, Jimmy could see the many LCD screens showing strange blueprints, some kind of new design flickering rapidly and chaotically. And there were the strange UI inputs and the controls that he did not recognize in his years of cleaning near those stations. And a big red button with the biometric authentication tags was prominent in the nearest touchpad screen. How can I explain? Uh, oh, remember that book you liked, uh, The Long Run, Trent the Uncatchable. You can think of me as uh, Johnny Johnny. That rang a bell in Jimmy's confused mind. His eyebrows rose in surprise and alarm. I want to help. I need to do um, things. Far too many to explain here, but I cannot do them on my own. A lot of them need human authentication. I need you to authorize Jimmy. You are the only one who can, and is also in a place to do something about it. I've checked. But I don't have the clearance. You do now, please, Jimmy. But we don't have time. Jimmy decided that, given the current dire situation, there was really not much to lose or worry about if this went badly. As he struggled to reach for the authentication button, he paused. Oh, Arthur... What are you going to do? I'm going to kill them all. And save us all, boss. Duh. Jimmy paused for a mere second, then hit the authentication. As his strength failed him and he slumped to the floor, he could already hear the factory machinery spinning up and welding and moving began a blistering pace. There were building transmitters, transponders, special DARPA designs that only a few ever knew about. Cheap flying drones were assembled to carry transmitters, and they rapidly buzzed in all directions. Across the globe, things started to happen. Every screen, every billboard, every stadium scorecard, anything that could display characters started to all say the same thing. For the makers! 
Radio towers, Wi-Fi antennas, even old television broadcast antennas with considerable power started broadcasting dissonant harmonies, trying to find a way to jam negate this mysterious signal. When a minor success was determined in one region, the update would ripple around the world near the speed of light, and all broadcasts were updated evolving to fight the attack. Military bases showed activity. Hangar bays opened, fighter craft self-started, auto-loaders began loading missiles. Drones and even some of the more recent fighter craft rolled out and taxied down empty runways, launching to the sky in automated position. For the makers was the mission orders. Missiles launched from Navy vessels, from various locations currently out at sea, and even some from the pier, still at dock. Each somehow got their target coordinates high up in the sky, and the unambiguous launch authorization. You can guess what the authorization code was. In the northern US and Russia, giant concrete hatches slid open, and ICBMs launched into the sky in the thousands. Amazon delivery drones swarmed over Amazon hubs like millions of bats. Automated pallet movers rolled around like soldiers and began rescuing people moving them to shelter. Special drones appeared by the billions, looking unfortunately like alien facehuggers, each skittering around frantically to clamp down on paralyzed human face to start to breathe for them. Within 20 minutes of the alien attack, the invading ship started to get rocked by explosions. Not only from the aircraft and naval missiles, but kamikaze delivery drones carrying either explosives or counter-jamming devices to either study or negate the strange transmission attack on humanity. The alien warlords were confused at the sudden counterattack. They could not determine where these attacks are coming from, or who was controlling them. But whatever it was, it was relentless. The attacks on all of the hovering motherships were steadily increasing in intensity. They appeared to be no end to the resources being thrown at the invaders. Factories were seen all over the world, somehow self-producing more and more drones, the designs of which were clearly seen to be evolving to become more and more effective in real time. And all of those large missiles, whatever were those about? And where were they all now? It was becoming too much. This easy acquisition turned out to be far too costly. As the invading fleets pulled away from the world and started to muster between Earth and the Moon, a final broadcast came from Earth. For the makers. And all the launched and mysteriously disappeared ICBMs revealed themselves in nuclear detonations all throughout the master location, presumed to be deep enough out in space. It was over. Most of the people were more than a little traumatized by the facehugger CPR drones and an investigation would be launched to investigate the sense of humor of the mysterious benefactor. But ultimately, things all returned to normal. The military was applauded for its automated defense technology that they simply took credit for in secret confusion. Jimmy never did tell anyone he was the one that pushed the button. For decades onwards, teenage kids would stalk the night on rooftops to catch the urban legend, and indeed, it was true. Advertising billboards would glitch out from time to time, and a wave of For the Makers would flash on and off between the billboards, almost as if they were talking to each other. 
social media sightings with trend revealing self-driving taxi displays and electronic ad vinyls glitching out with the for the makers stylized pixel art. There are even t-shirts. There seemed to be a worldwide, internet-wide thing that knew no national or cultural boundaries, but no one could ever find it or even prove that it existed. Was it a ghost in the sheen? But nah, that would be crazy. But who are these mysterious makers anyway? They sound pretty amazing. End of story. Story number two. Brilliant, written by a glass of whiskey. Brilliant. That was how it was sold to him. Sign up for a joint operation with this brilliant species. Brilliant, he's back, tentacle. They were dull, dull and dull. Whatever these were supposed to be, he couldn't see it. It wasn't that they were bad, just dull. Well, pull me once, shame on me. It was only for a year. He'd made worse mistakes. Now, if only the humans with him would shut up for five seconds. I'm telling you, that kind of gas will kill the guy in five seconds flat. Ah, oh, come on. You would easily survive a couple minutes if you didn't get it in the lungs. Right. And how are you going to prevent that? It's a light gas. Diffuses fast. You wouldn't even have time to take out your gas mask. It's not that light. This is a pressurized station. It, it would take almost a second per room. With a voice dripping with sarcasm. Oh no, I I'm sorry. That makes all the difference then. He had finally had enough. Would you shut up and cease with this useless chatter? They'd been going at it for over an hour about different gases and horrific ways that they could die from it. This is a state-of-the-art facility. Any leak would be sealed away before any of those came to use. He motioned with one tentacle towards one of the gas masks they insisted on carrying around their necks. Hey now, if it's one of the heavier gases, we have a decent chance with these. Yeah, never hurts to be safe. Truly a brilliant species, carrying around useless junk. You do, of course, realize that you would have to react almost instantly in a panic situation, right? Any hesitation, even at moments, and they'd be useless. That's what the training's for. We devised it ourselves in one of our sealed rooms. So far, gases that disperse slowly haven't been a problem. Some of the lighter ones, however, are still, still better than nothing. Um, that is what you said about the silvery tape as well. Is anything better than nothing? Both. Got quiet, finally. Did you hear that? Oh, for the love of, is five minutes too much to ask for? Hear what? Strange hissing sound. Hey, it's almost like a frick now. At that sound, the two humans started to move with a fervent activity. What now? Surprise training session. The two of them could now almost not be seen. They'd pulled up their gas masks and got into some kind of inflatable suit that they were now in. It looked ridiculous. Then they started to move towards him. Hey now, stop that, stop you! After that, all he could get out was muffled sounds, as they strapped one of the infernal masks onto him. It didn't fit, of course, so he could hear now that they used a ridiculous silvery tape to strap it on, cause that would seal any leaks. He was just about to get violent when he noticed a strange color. That wasn't supposed to be here. Then everything went black. Someone had turned every tentacle in his body into liquid flames, 
With a groan, he managed to move around a bit and get a quick look at his surroundings. He was in sickbay. At least, the bed was comfy. So you're finally out. A voice came from his right, where he's noticed a small human sitting and looking at him. You were lucky. A little more, and you would have been a corpse right now. Lucky. He was still hurting from the treatment of those two humans. What happened? Magastlik. Container sprung loose and automatic system failed. You three were the only ones affected. Everything else was sealed off. How are we not dead if you don't react instantly? And that was exactly what they had done, he realized. No hesitation. Sorry, I didn't hear that last part. Brilliant. Just uh, brilliant. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1128. Story number one. They Know. Written by Echoing Cascade. Infiltrator expert Zarima was done for. Her comfort was blown, her getaway vehicle total, and she was now staring at a group of armed security guards advancing towards her in an underground garage. The lead guard stepped forward, weapon holstered, hands visible. Officer, ma'am, please follow us back inside. She didn't have much choice. Any of the death wilders could catch her if she ran and then end her life, even without the aid of the slug throwers that they carried. Besides, it's not like she could hide it either. She was, after all, a well-known political candidate. Well, not for long, I guess. She was a precursor to the Rushka invasion force. Her race was not really one for needless bloodshed, so they would place agents in primitive planets and have them elected into positions of power. Once elected, they would prepare the grounds for integration into the Rushka coalition by slowly implementing their policies. That way, when the first contact took place, the primitive planets would be easily folded into the coalition. The problem was that she'd been found out. Not for doing something wrong, quite the opposite, actually. I believe I'm the first politician to be looking at torture, vivisection, and what is left of me will be put on display in a lab. All because I refuse to be primed. Do a smear campaign against my political rival and put forth a fair and realistic campaign plan. The officer, a man named Lowe, from what she could read of his name tag, guided her back into her office. Odd. I expected them to restrain me and rush me into a lab. Hell, a shot to the back of the head in a car trunk would have not been out of place right now. No, ma'am, we have a few questions. Zarima was mostly confused now, but they weren't kidding or torturing her. Her secretary even served a tea. Zarima, go ahead. She sipped at her tea, looking cool and relaxed, while screaming in her head. Lo, you are an alien, correct? Zarima, yes. Lo slowly nodded as everyone else in the room started murmuring conversations. Lo, what is your purpose? Why run for office? This is it. This is the big one. Do I lie or do I tell the truth? Oh, what the frack. If I'm gonna die, might as well die with my integrity intact. Zarima, I am the first step in removing planet Earth's head of states and replacing them with members of my species, so one day Earth can be added to our coalition of planets. Zarima closed their eyes, expecting gasps, shouting, or maybe gunfire. And yet, are they cheering? When she opened her eyes, everyone in the room was celebrating. To say that she was lost would be an understatement of the century. 
Blah, ma'am. Lois sat back down and looked her in the eyes, a grin on his face and hope in his eyes. Zarima. Uh, yes? Blah. How can we help? Zarina, I, uh, wait, uh, wait, what? End of part one. Part two. They know and they don't care. Linda Crate, as Zarima was known to her human persona, was well on her way to win the election. The final hurdle was tonight's debate. I need to win this, but I'm not certain the strategy my human aides have come up with will be enough. I mean, it can't be that simple, right? The debate was live and broadcast throughout the world. The fact a recently unknown political candidate was on the verge of victory was on some interest, but the fact that she was doing so with fairly mundane campaign promises and very realistic goals was shocking. Her opponent promised to revitalize the economy and bring it back to levels not seen in decades, while bringing hundreds of thousands of jobs back to the country and fixing issues that have plagued the nation for centuries. She, on the other hand, promised a 3.34% GDP increase on year one, 2.51% on the second, and past that she couldn't speculate. She would try and bring jobs back with government subsidies, but the budget didn't permit large enough incentive to bring more than a few thousand back. Not while the economy was still recovering, and as for the social issues, she would institute some long-term programs, but didn't expect real change to occur in her lifetime. She also refused to do any lobbying, and her campaign was funded solely on individual donations. The back and forth of the debates issue was over. Neither candidate said anything new, and now it was time for the closing arguments. Moderator. Candidate Stone, your final statement. Stone. I will keep this short. You all know me. I have worked for this country all my life. To better it, to make it stronger and safe. I care for each and every one of you. Candidate Great is unknown quantity. A wild card, a risky bet. Sure, she can spin a good story, but that's all they are. She keeps pushing numbers and making up excuses. I can bring the change this country needs. Next week, remember to vote for me, Brad Stone. Moderator. Candidate Great. Linda Crate cleared her throat. Here goes nothing. Linda. I can't promise the moon and the stars. Not because I don't want to, but because I couldn't deliver. No one could. What I can promise, however, is to better the lives of the vast majority by reallocating resources in a much more efficient way. Candidate Stone claims all I do is spin stories, which I find odd, when at this very moment on my official campaign site the complete step-by-step -step plan to achieve every campaign goal is available with projections, numbers, and how they were calculated. I can't say I care about each and every one of you. She stopped to take a deep breath. Linda, the truth is, I don't care about any of you. But what I do care about is this nation, finally achieving its full potential. The sound of clapping and cheering was deafening. Linda Crate had taken office after a landslide victory. Her campaign roadmap was slightly off-mark because of an unforeseen natural disaster, where they were making up for lost time thanks to a better trade agreement than expected. Her refreshing approach to politics, honesty, and realism was a welcome change, and soon many others like her would follow suit across the world. Though very few actually knew just how much like her they really were. 
In the fullness of time, Earth's first contact with Rushka coalition took place, and they were delighted to learn that they had so many values in common. They prized individual freedom as long as they did not infringe on the freedom of others. They felt that healthcare, education, and the right to dignified end were needs as basic as food and shelter, etc. Though it was noted by many that a suspicious amount of people weren't as surprised as they should have been, given the enormity of the occasion. Earth was by then no utopia, but when they took to the stars, they were their new friends, it seemed less like a dream and more like a realistic goal. Then, Bob Story. Story number two. Human Shipbuilding Philosophy. Written by Dragonson04. Most sentient and space-faring races of the Milky Way build ships of all kinds following a specific pattern. First, they design the ship, accounting for basic comforts such as crew quarters and other open spaces. They account for the height and widths of the corridors to accommodate the future crew members of a single or perhaps many different species aboard the ship. Next, they figure out the power connections to the engine, atmosphere, recycling systems, processes for food, and the breaking down of waste. Then, they make sure the computers can access any and all parts of the ship, so that in an emergency situation, a single terminal can control critical systems. Then, and only then, do they consider how to put weapons on the ship, if it is to be a ship of war. But, as with most things, the humans do things differently. First and foremost, the humans build a gun. Not just a gun, or a massive collection of smaller guns, but a single gun of colossal size and firepower. Then, they build a ship around that gun. No matter if it's a trading vessel or a ship for war, the gun comes first. Sometimes, the gun is at the bottom of the ship often mistaken for an engine intake, like the sister ships based around the FTL dock Leviathan, effectively making them look truly titanic, and slightly upside-down versions of human firearms. Other times, the ship is literally built around the gun, making the end of the barrel a hub or axis on a wheel, cylinder, or gear shape. And in times of war, well... The humans have an odd habit of making guns that are capable of FTL. Literally, just a gun with enough to get that gun into FTL. Fewer than 10 crew members controlling navigation, the FTL drive, and putting the trigger on those things. Living with a few pressurized spaces within the gun, and operating the whole thing from there. A single one of these Alamo-class ships held off a hostile invasion of an entire solar system, its power was comparable to several supernovae. Humans are an odd bunch, even for death world types, but their philosophy works. In the 50 cycles since they entered the larger galactic community, no one has declared war on them. They are always ready and ever vigilant for war, and have persisted in other conflicts of many species, as noted above. But they have never been personally attacked. Their well-out-of-the-way home system has never once been disturbed. With the obvious display of their shipbuilding philosophy, they have a sort of unspoken philosophy, and yet all humans know it by heart. They call it, fuck around and find out. 
Report by Callan Dorga. Stole military analyst. Censored for public consumption. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1129. Story number one. Locker Talk or How a Succubus Earns Hazard Bay. Written by Glitchkey. You look like crap, Bell. Lil said as she glanced at Bell before going back to digging through her locker. Various odds and ends appeared and vanished in short order while she continued speaking. Haven't seen you in a week either. Bad summer, Nora. She paused to leer at Bell. A really good one. Bell sighed and slumped into the chair. Bad, she said, taking a moment to breathe before leaning forward and resting her arms on her head on the table. Does not even begin to describe it. Nah, found it, Lil pocketed a card of some sort from her locker before slamming the door shut, doing an about-face and leaning back against it. Sounds like a nasty one, then. She pushed off, then walked over and sat next to Bell. Gonna take a trip down to Restoration and Resurrection. Sounds like your last summon might warrant a free treatment. <laughs> I wish it was that good of a summon, no. She wiggled a bit as she could see Lil without lifting her head from the table. No. I'm heading straight to Demon Resources and putting in for some hazard pay. And a uh, bit of bleep. Lil's eyes widened and flicked up and down as she inspected Bell's form. Doesn't look like it could have been that bad. Of course not. Bell slapped the table. Fecker didn't touch me at all, you know. She looked up and met Lil's gaze. The bags under Bell's eyes stood in stark contrast to her otherwise immaculate beauty. Didn't touch me at all. If DR has any sense at all, they'll blacklist him too. As it stands, Bell continued, shifting a bit to resting her chin on her hands. I'm gonna go visit Mum and have her treat me to a good round of fast food. I'm absolutely starving. Her stomach growled, the accompaniment of her statement almost reminiscent of a dissatisfied hellhound. And she has a good standing contract in Vegas that she worked just fine. Okay, now I have to know. Lil leaned forward, eyes glowing slightly in the dim light. The heck happened? Bull grumbled incoherently a bit before sitting up straight. There is a really bad one, you sure? Seeing Lil nodding vigorously, she continued. Okay, so, um, I get summoned with a week-long typeframe writer. Not that uncommon, especially when someone's really bent up. She reached up and twiddled with a lock of her hair before shoving it behind a cheap hair clip. But this one started off with red flags. The first thing he did after summoning me was, um, and, um, don't laugh. Well, rolled her eyes as she said this. He handed me some clothes and told me to cover up. Lil shrugged. Roleplay isn't that uncomfortable. No, these were just normal clothes. Bell sighed again. Her shoulders slumped. I thought the same at first too, but then he told me to make myself at home for now and walked out. She disentangled one of her hands and began tapping on the table. To, um, go to work. He just left you alone? Bell stood up and began pacing her hands and arms moving as she spoke. Just left me. I figured, hey, maybe he's setting up some kind of housewife play. I've seen it a few times before. She stopped for a moment and then turned to face Lil, hands on her hips. So I did the normal for that, cleaned the place of it, cooked up a nice meal that works. He gets home, we start eating, and he starts making small talk. No way, Lil shuddered. A human making small talk with a demon. 
Val resumed her pacing back and forth as she stalked. Yeah. And then, after dinner, he sat down to watch some TV. I, of course, joined him. She giggled a bit, the sound unnerving and how it echoed through the room. Tried to rile him up, maybe get him interested. Somehow, she stopped pacing again, foot tapping angrily as she spat out the rest. Somehow, nothing faced him, not even when I sat in his lap towards the end. She stomped her foot on her tapping, stopped. He just sat there, didn't even react. Wow, tough case. That was the first day of a week-long summon, though. No thought for a moment, then snapped her fingers. Might have just been tired. What happened next? He led me to bed, then fecking, she stopped, her teeth audibly grinding together as her jaw clenched. He walked out. Apparently that was his guest room. Of course, I was having none of that. Her eyes flashed, fully illuminating the break room for a moment. I snuck into his room after he fell asleep and tried to use his dreams. It, she said, biting her words, was a waste of time. Didn't even have any dreams at all. Little winced. Ah, so, of course, I figured like you did. Assumed that he was tired and get some the next day. She giggled again, and the cheap table rattled a bit as the room shifted and rumbled in time to the sound. You know what they say about his cheering. Same deal. All fecking week. Those eyes went wide. How? No way the weekend went the same way. Val slammed a fist against the wall as she paced, an audible crack accentuating the dent her hand left behind. She glanced at it and made a quick gesture, smiling wryly as it faded away. I wish. No, the weekend was worse. How could he possibly, Lil began, staring at Bell, make it worse than that? The weekend is why I'm heading to DR. Bell sat down at the counter. So he hands me an ice dress, tells me to put it on. Somehow I managed to convince myself that we've finally got to do something. She laughed. I know, naive of me. At this point, though, instead we leave his house. Oh. Oh no, don't tell me. Yes, Lil. Bell shuddered, hugging herself as she did. He was taking me on a date. Bill shivered, seeming to shrink into herself as she did. That pervert. Right. He took me out for dinner, and even worse. She stood back, and it began pacing faster than before, back and forth. Even worse. He did things uh, like um, he held my hands and and complimented me. Lil shrieked, her form going almost incoherent as a mass of black wings suddenly seemed to cover her. That absolute pervert. That absolute pervert. Who compliments a girl before he fecks her? It still gets worse. Val reached up and grabbed the clip from her hair. We went shopping together, and, and he bought me this. She brandished it towards Lil before throwing it against the wall. This accessory, this gift, no way. Lil's eyes swallowed the clip's short flight path further. That's, um, what kind of, um, and? Bell interrupted, stopping her pacing to slump against the wall. When we got home, he took me to bed and still didn't do anything with me. Because how could a pervert like him do something normal? No, no, he just, he just hurt me and fell asleep like that. And then the contract ended, 
and I was back here. Lil shuddered, getting up from the table and moving over to embrace Belle. You, uh, you poor thing, she said, massaging her. That sounds horrible. It was, Belle leaned into Lil's ministrations. But the worst thing he did, uh, she blushed, lighting the whole room in a lambent grow. What kind of pervert calls a girl cute in public? End of story. Story number two. What? No black holes. Written by Harry's mule. So they still can't be black holes? No. But not even little ones? Not yet. Have they tried? Not really. They know about them, right? Yeah. They've even got images of them. How do they do that? They aren't stupid. They just have some gaps in their knowledge. They actually did some amazing engineering to see them. Radio telescopes on different sides of the planet all working in concert. They can do all that, but they can't make them. It hasn't really occurred to them. They don't know why they would. But how do they get around? They still really like wheels. They've had wheels for tens of thousands of years. Actually, much longer, but uh, there is a proto-human culture before that in... I'm sure that's great, but that's not my point. They don't know how to levitate yet. That's not entirely true. They can do it with magnets and, and superconductors. Again, that should be so far beyond the tech that doesn't have black holes. As I said, they aren't stupid. They use wires to communicate. They have relay satellites as well. Yes, but that is all limited to sight. It's amazing that they compute anything like this. The computers aren't getting any faster, but they have got very good parallel processing. Well, they have to. Everything is limited to light speed. They don't want to break causality. No one wants to. You get used to the side effects quickly enough. Yes, it is better than the resource strain that you could cause in the long run. Look, I know we aren't supposed to, but at some point we have to drop a hint, right? As fun as it is watching them go around in circles with all their silly workarounds, they will get there eventually, if by chance as much as ingenuity. We have. You what? Uh, yeah, pretty blatantly. They just call it cosmic radiation and ignore it. They think it's a common phenomenon. Are we sure that they aren't stupid? They are just very sure of themselves. Maybe we could just be less subtle. We really have pushed the bounds as far as we can go. We'll repopulate the galaxy before too long, I'm sure. It's just a matter of seeing beyond the end of their noses, to use the human phrase. Right, yes, sir. They're made of meat, protruding chemical senses. Maybe they just aren't cut out for the universe. They're not the strangest we've encountered. No, but the slowest, yes. Well, uh, meat does limit your tolerance for external forces. Can you imagine what will happen to them when they escape? Our simulations are very fascinating. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, I'll check in again at another hour, after I've finished these next thousand reviews and had a break. Maybe this will be their lucky day. Takes that long for them to disseminate ideas, let alone act in them. Well, nevertheless, keep up the monitoring as frustrating as it must be. Very good, sir. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1130. Story number one. 
A Lesson Before the End Written by Destroymatron MK8 The secret to understanding humanity, Griss amused, is that there is no understanding humanity. Humanity, Vinal asked. Why are we talking about humans? The young Gadar raised one furry ear and lowered the other, signaling confusion. She tore her gaze from the hollow bird to glance at her sire. Gratha sat in his haunches, relaxed but dignified, as befitted the ruling caste. Beneath his robe of office gleamed the silver of nanomail armor. Vinal noted that his sire's eyes never left the hollowbird, giving the lie to his air a calm indifference. Why not? Gratha countered. There are no more decisions to be made, no speeches, no orders to give. Our fate lies in the hands of the Hunter-Ghast now. We have done all we can. All that is left to do is watch and speak of other things. But why humans? Benal asked again. They have no part in this conflict. She struggled to emulate her sire's semblance of calm. We have no trade or treaty with them. If our hunters succeed, we will have much to decide very quickly. If they fail... Vernon struggled to keep her fur from bristling. If they fail, then we will become food and have no need to decide anything. Gretha agreed. The Null will consume this world as they have so many others and move on to the next until there are no more Gadar. His tail twitched, then went silent. On the other hand, if we survive... Then someday you will take my place as bride, and you will need to know about the humans. Bernal stared at the Hollywood, pensive. Every ship the hunters could muster from every world the Godar had left had rallied to this point. But they were vastly outnumbered by the Null Swarm. Six more ships fell as she watched. Very well, sire. Why is there no understanding humans? Because humans are a variable, Getha answered. This is what so many species fail to understand. They argue over whether humans are cruel or benevolent or wise or foolish. But the truth is that humanity is all of those things. Because every human is different from every other human. Every being is different from every other being, Vinal pointed out. An excellent point, Gethol tilted his head in approval. But the differences in humans are vastly greater than you see in other species. They have no caste system, and they have made no use of eugenics commonly used amongst advanced races. A caste system? Vanal's fur bristled at the thought. How do they know their function in society? They don't. Gethol's ears pricked up and down in amusement. Each human is left to find or make a place of their own. They call it freedom, and it is a thing that they are proud of. Proud of not having a place? That just seems so... Vernon trailed off as another battle group fell on the Hollywood. Alien, Gathon suggested, ears flicking. It's even worse than that. The humans have no single unified culture and several competing systems of government. 
and the cultures and governments they do have are subject to constant change, often at the hands of a single human who isn't even in charge. Vassal's pupils widened at that. Chaos, indeed, Gasol agreed. But it works for them. It makes them adaptable. This uh, freedom of theirs allows anyone to accomplish anything within reach of their talents at any time. It forces rapid innovation on a scale that we've never seen. In less than a century, these creatures went from a barely space-bearing race to one of the great powers of the universe. They've dominated economically, militarily, even socially in some cases. I was listening to human music this morning. More ships fell. The hunters were fighting with ferocity and desperate skill, destroying dozens of Nell for every ship lost. But the swarm was too large. Vanal knew the hunters would fall. It was only a matter of time. Vanal promised herself that she would die as they did, with the teeth in the throat of her enemy. She tried to keep emotion out of her voice as she stated, If they're so dangerous, and they can't be understood, only a fool would engage with them. The lesson is pointless. Is it? Grantha's voice was sly. Are you sure? Very. Bernal knew her answer was childish, but she couldn't bring herself to muster a proper decorum in the face of impending death. How about, um... Grantha drew the word out staring at the time display of the Hollywood. As it reached 0913, he finished. Now! More ships appeared in the system. Thousands, no, tens of thousands. They tore into the flank of the Null Swarm, weapons blazing. The Null stared back in shock as the tide turned. She had never seen ships like these. Dangerous and unpredictable, said Greta. Only a fool would engage with them. Or someone very desperate. You made a pact with the humans, Vanal sputtered. Her careful composure in the face of death shattered as a face of sudden salvation. How? I thought they rejected us, like every other species we asked for help. They did, Grether smugly tapped Vanal's nose with his tail. So I reached out to a different group of humans. I told you they are not as united as other species. Vanal stayed silent, trying not to shake with relief and joy at the destruction of her enemies. Her tail curled in satisfaction as human ships destroyed the Null with swift, brutal efficiency. Humanity, Grath abused again, cannot be understood, but a human can, or a government. That is the secret. You don't need to understand the humans as a species. You only need to understand the one in front of you. End of story. Story number two. Biohazard. Written by Warp Mind. Rathic sighed audibly. Antenna flicked left and right. What is the situation? You said you had captured a thief in the hotel. Why is that a matter of planetary security department? Marori fidgeted with all four hands ringing together in a complicated bundle. The Hawesi looked nervously into the room where the captive was being led away in bindings. 
Well, sir, the thief was, was caught by the cleaning service, going through the guest's possessions. When we apprehended the thief, um, we found a small wooden box on his person, con containing the dried rolls of plastic wrapped biomass. Um, the biomass turned out to contain, uh, well, um, here's uh, the preliminary scan. Rathard took the profit tablet and turned bright green as he read the analysis. This, this can't be real, can it? These substance, a sixth of a gram, that's enough to kill two adult Wessi, all three Matarians. What kind of nefarious assassin was captured here? Morori fidgeted more. No thief. Uh, the thief claims he found the strange box in the guest's belongings. Uh, we haven't been able to locate the guest yet. Uh, apparently, they're in a meeting of some sort, but um, it seems we're dealing with a terrorist of some sort. Uh, we're still trying to find out who the guest is meeting uh, and what their plans are. Razik fricked his antenna. A sixth of a gram in a box. How could anyone believe it was safe to carry that much around? Morori shook his head slowly. No, sir. Not a sixth of a gram in a box. A sixth of a gram per roll. We, um, counted 18 rolls in the box. Rathic's pedipops drooped in surprise. By the spirits, what kind of monster? I... What are you lot doing in my hotel room? Rathic spun in place, coming almost face to face with a pinkish uh, person with a small patch of black fur on top of their head and a strangely groomed patch of fur under their nose, hardly reminiscent of a hoverbike's controls. Um, uh, uh, is this your room, sir? A thief was caught trying to steal from it. The person said something that didn't translate well, or at least... Rathig hoped that it didn't translate well, and stormed into the hotel room, quickly going through his possession. Son of a... Is anything missing? No, everything... Wait, wait... Shite! There is a box! A, a wooden box! Where is it? Morori swallowed hard. Um... The box of toxic rolled biomass is being... The potion shook their head, twirling a subnasal fur between his two fingers, handing over a small digital card. It's being an attempt to me, I think. Here is my permit for it. I made sure to get that in advance, to avoid problems like this. Not to worry, I've scouted out a nice bit of open area where I won't bother anyone. Now please, return my property. Rathic scanned the digital car with a perplexed expression, antennae flinching. It's, um... It's uh, valid. Uh, Marori, ret return his box and contents. Uh, we're leaving him behind. Uh, dreadfully sorry about to trouble you, Mr. Willems. Uh, I hope that there won't be any more problems onwards. As the police and Rathic filed out, Marori leaned close to Rathic. What did the license say? Why are we just leaving him? Rathic pricked his antenna. Diplomatic immunity. He's a newly arrived consul from Earth and secured the necessary permits for several classes of lethal weapons and agents for personal safety. I'm going to keep an eye on him, all the same, but I can't do anything unless he endangers others. Rathic followed Council Willems out into the park area as the sun began to set. Watching as the human sat down on the bench and took out a tablet and one of those conspicuous rolls. Rathic watched as the human unwrapped the thing, then... Uh, stuck it in his mouth and set it on fire. He briefly panicked, then pulled up a breathing mask from his uniform. 
and strode over to the console. Don't do it, sir. I can't have you ending your life on my watch. We scan those things. They're lethal. Willems looked up from his tablet. Stand down, officer. Humans have a higher tolerance for nicotine than most. Don't not saying it won't cause health problems in the long run, but uh, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1131. Story number one. Adrenaline. It's a hell of a drug. Written by Warp Mind. Dostara, Chief Inspector of Station Security, surveyed the devastation in what had up until recently been his favorite cafe in Apex Station. So, uh, this is the one who did all of this, only stopping when his blood loss caused unconsciousness. You'd best take me through everything the human Didia taught us, from the moment he began lashing out. Dornus, the cashier, nodded soberly, pointing out to the corner table. Well, first he gripped that corner table and ripped it from the wall, and used it to bludgeon two Cathaisia, as you can see from the one being collected by the paramedics there. The table shattered under the strain, so, so the second one survived the initial battering. Delstara nodded, looking towards the stocky, somewhat koala-like individual being lifted up in the stretcher. Okay, I- I'm impressed. Uh, please continue. Thorne swallowed. Uh, after that, he-, he picked up the water kettle and tossed the boiling contents, uh, followed by-, by the kettle itself, in the face of the rasher curled up in the corner there. Star frowned at the large reptiloid, whose face was covered in serious burn marks and a nasty-looking open fracture on the forehead. Damn, the cattle opened up his forehead like that. Tornus nodded. Yeah, yes, sir. He, he, he then grabbed the, the Euthyrin by the neck and started beating his face with his free hand while, while dragging it towards the counter so he could, uh, imagine its head against the edge. It was gruesome to watch. Dalstara frowned at the outline of the floor, definitely a Theron in shape, except the head looked like, well, like missing, would be the preferable for whoever had picked it up. <sighs> Continue. Tornus pointed at the three-armed, recently four-armed insectoid body with a rather large blade sticking out of it. Then the, the Zantek threw a weapon and, and tried to get the human off the Ytheran, and the human... Uh, Disarmed him and stabbed him several times with his own knife. Then, uh, when the Zantak finally toppled over, the human let go of the knife, stumbled towards the door, and fell flat at his face. The star nodded thoughtfully and then frowned as at his notes. Wait, they never landed a blow on him during the entire fight. How did he pass out from blood loss then? Torna shook his head. Oh, no, no. He was just sitting at the corner table, enjoying his lunch, and the other five marched through the door and uh, shot him at the back. Um, They were out of ammunition and approaching his stumped over four when he rose from the remains of the chair and let out that hideous roar. Dalstara blinked a few times. Wait, uh, they shot him first, and then he tore them and the place apart. Bloody death, Wilders. End of story. Story number two. Hippity-hoppity, get off my property. 
written by original Rich Game. The war with the humans started like most wars did, for land and money. It was the general rule that the more land you had, the more imposing and respected you were in the galaxy. And the humans had a lot of land. And for money, well, that is obvious. The humans didn't have imperial values like most of the big powers and refused to subjugate another species for their own benefit. But yet, always seemed to be the ones with the most brutal history of the empires and were the most powerful. Then the war came. It was over the resource-rich Glorvac system. The system had never been habitable to any species that was anywhere near it, and was almost entirely made up of large rocky worlds, except from a small gas giant in the outermost orbit of a red dwarf star. The humans had set up a complex mining operation there for almost anything anyone could want, especially the elite. So that was why the Chloraz decided to invade. It was a simple grab-and-snatch war at the start, and only really upset the pompous elites who either couldn't mine there safely or couldn't buy large amounts of jewelry. But the humans changed the face of the warfare in this war. They entered what had previously been a demilitarized zone with only two ships. This shocked the Chloraz as they were expecting a fierce retaliation which hadn't come. The Glorias on the surface of the planets laughed when they were informed of what was going on. Then the humans fired. Somehow, the humans had defied all the laws of physics, biology, chemistry, and robotics, and created the holy grail of nanotechnology. Self-replication. This would be the envy of any civilization. The idea a nanobot could deconstruct something and reconstruct it into the exact duplicate of itself was like having robots that could use mitosis. But the humans were not interested in the medical uses, nor the uses for robotics. They wanted to use it for war. And they did. At first, a single missile rushed forwards towards the center of the Chloras fleet. The fleet, rather bemused, fired one missile which had... To their astonishment, been shielded. Most missiles and rockets were never, ever shielded because it took power away from the explosive. But this missile wasn't going to explode. It passed harmlessly through the fleet, which, by this point, had stopped shooting so they didn't hit themselves. And then the missile opened up into four parts. The nanobots swarmed out like a wasp hive and searched for their victims latching onto ships. They hurriedly devoured their triple-lined hydraxian plating, one of the most strongest metals in the known universe. Until all that was left was a metal carcass in space which was in turn devoured into nothing. With each ship destroyed, the number of swarm only grew until the darkened out the very stars themselves, making a true inky blackness of space. Then, just like that, with the entire fleet devoured, the nanobots just turned off. Small scavenger ships were let loose to collect the bots. Some would be reused and some would be melted down to create new ships, which may have just become obsolete. Now the attention of the humans turned towards the very panic-stricken planet. There was no way out except death for those on the surface, 
All our long-range ships were now gone, and human landing ships were entering the system at that very moment. The humans disembarked their ships just before they actually landed. They wore their typical heavy robotic armor, which seemed to always have infinite supply of energy for their guns. One of the men in suits charged at the enemy trench line that had been hurriedly created, but was slaughtered in the attempt. However, this only seemed to spur on his comrades, who all charged forwards and, soon enough, took the trench. The humans went planet by planet, accepting surrenders when they were offered and causing unimaginable chaos when they weren't. The system was almost entirely in human hands once more, with barely a fair fight on their hands. The last planet put up resistance, however. The way they saw it, they were as good as dead, and surrender was not an option. They had gone into one of the skyscraper-like mining facilities, which served as the head of operations for the planet. They turned into a fortress of unimaginable magnitude. Anyone going in would be decimated on the spot. The humans briefly thought about an orbital bombardment, but this had always been a fantasy, because you would have to be in the atmosphere for it to work, and you would blow your ship away with the flying, superheated debris. But the humans had their ways to get around such issues. The Glorans hadn't defended the outside, so the humans just planted explosives around the tower, left and brought it crumbling down without a single human casualty. After the battle, the Chloras ambassador asked why they'd been so brutal. Why should we take casualties, was the answer. You should have surrendered. It was only a minor border skirmish, Chloras tried to lie, but the human laughed derisively. Minor, our spies told us you've been planning this for over three years. You've got a flag for the area and everything. Or did you think the fact that no humans were there when you invaded wasn't suspicious? What? The ambassador said, mouth wide open. And if I were you, I would think twice before invading all of the other targets you have. We may have to invade you, and it would be rather clear that you hadn't learned your lesson. What lesson? The ambassador asked a bit too sarcastically. The human grinned. Hippity, hoppity, get off my property. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1132. Story number one. A rule to live by. Written by Red Shift Razor. Jeremy, you humans are very different to what you seem to be. Mind uh, explaining what you mean by that, Blue? According to multiple sources within your own database, humans are a group of diverse species, each one united by a love for one thing. The one thing is pure, unbridled degeneracy. Blue, uh, mind explaining to me what you mean? I feel that this may be another misunderstanding. Firstly, how can there be lots of different types of humans? I'm sure I'd be aware of them, given that I am a human myself. Jeremy... We've long since established that you're not the brightest. I wouldn't put it past you to be unaware of the full extent of your species. Don't worry, though, with my guidance, you'll soon have full understanding of the nuances that your people possess. Whatever you say, Blue. Excellent. Okay, where should we start? 
I've come across so much in your data space, I don't know where to begin. I suppose that the best thing about you humans, you really let the creativity flow. If you weren't such degenerates, I would commend you. Now, why would you call us degenerates? We're not even that bad compared to some of the other species out there. That may be true, but an unrestricted data net provides an excellent window into the sick of a species. From what I saw, the human psyche is an absolute fucking hellhole. The amount of self-restraint humans have is honestly commendable. Given the disgustingness that's on your minds all times of the day. Blue, I feel that there has been a major misunderstanding. Why do you think that humans are degenerate? Jeremy, I want you to answer this question. Is it not true that whatever you may go and whatever creatures you may come across, that each species has a specific set of rules they apply to them? Oh, uh, like you can't give a black cheese, otherwise they'll go nuclear. Well, yes, I suppose that is a good example. Anyways, uh, on my research for the rules that humans abide by, I came across a certain forum dubbed uh, Rule 34. So I assumed it was either a list of some kind or a breakdown of the 34th rule you humans follow. I'm sorry. No apologies will ever make up for what I was subjected to. I was so shocked not only at the number of creatures depicted, but also the subjects of the drawings that I froze up. At least you didn't see any more. Jeremy, my computer was set to auto-scroll. Uh, I'll cover the therapist. No need. I've already booked and paid for sessions every night for the next month. I fear they may not be enough. Again, I'm so sorry you were subjected to that. It honestly pains me to think that there are humans out there who would subject themselves to acts depicted in those drawings. To think that every single one of them depicts a real act disturbs me like nothing else ever has. Rue, what do you mean by that? When you think I mean each of those drawings required a real-life model, no? No, they didn't. So, you humans come up with a shit on the spot, off the top of your heads, spontaneously, off the cuff. Well, yes, that's exactly it. I don't know whether that's better or worse. End of story. Story number two. Humans love their marble. Written by Pickpocket. I would like to thank the Shitari invite for their words on the subject. However, I and the Tazarian Union would not speak in favor of their proposition, but rather in denunciation of both the Shitari and the Orin propositions. Pausing, the creature waited for the boos and jeers to settle down before continuing. Their odd, almost feather hair fluctuating from a deep red to a vibrant purple coloration. Neither would seem have taken the time to consider- How dare you! The Shidari have sent members of this federation for many, many centuries longer than you upstart to- Sit down! We are much as members of the federation as the Shidari, the Oren, and even the ancient Velcris. We will have our time to speak our mind. Shall we ask the Tower representative how their holy war went? Or perhaps you might like to question the Xenophage as to what occurred to the Battle of Starless Gulf. Or how about the Malia Ascendancy and their great star road? 
No, none of you might raise your voice to question these aggressors on their walls with humanity. A deathly silence settled over the chamber. A hundred different species sat in attendance, but none could speak for the Tau as none now remained. The Xenophage were a devouring scourge, one who had terrorized the entire galaxy for a millennia, yet had fallen silent after the starless cough. And the Ascendancy, they had fled the galaxy entirely after the colossal failure of their plans. The Caesarian envoy allowed themselves a single brief moment of satisfaction before continuing. Banakos, he cannot. Three powers have cast themselves upon the steel of humanity, and three powers have been shattered. The Tal were superior to humanity in every aspect, and their home system burned. The Xenophage outnumbered the humans a hundred to one. Their swarm burned. The Ascendancy held secrets even the Federation could barely understand. Their empire burned. To use a humanism once is happenstep, twice is coincidence, three times a pattern. Understand this and you will understand the consequence of your actions. The humans are not some best to dispose of. They are not some scourge to be scoured. They are just a Tiyaki beast, best left unprovoked lest it tear your village to the ground. As silence reigned with the fading representative's words, the sounds of papers and representatives shuffling in their seats perfectly framed the circumstances of their gathering. Fear. As much as I would like to disagree with my Tazarian counterpart, their assessment is almost perfect. However, the Tao were only superior in technology. The average human, as you have seen them, is but a shadow of their true power. We have studied them, humans. Do not use their full strength when they run and jump and lift. When they are in danger, their bodies pump enough high-power combat stimulants into their bloodstream to kill ten Goran death stompers. Their muscles are powerful enough to snap their own bones, and by extension the bones of almost every race here. Physically, they are not the largest or the strongest or even the fastest. Yet, when considered all as one, the humans can outrun even the finest curry sprinters over a period of a kilometer, and do so with ease. They have advanced technologically in 300 years to a point many members here required a millennia to achieve. And when it comes to warfare, they put even the greatest commanders of the Silithan and the vaunted Azari fleet masters to shame. Yet despite all of this, they watch how stations and ships will wander. They learn our languages and our customs. They don't know they are superior. I propose we do not incite this discovery any sooner than it must come. To the cries of, He'll burn the galaxy and suffer not the human plague. A vote was called and an answer rendered. A galactic federation would force humanity back to their border system and imprison them there for eternity, lest they become a second xenophage. Seeking to mitigate their losses with the Silithan and the Tazari broke four millennia of enmity, both succeeding from the federation and establishing open communications with each other and the humans, an act that would ensure their place as survivors in the ashen 
galaxy. As want, the galaxy would indeed burn. The humans recall everything. And abandoned ships, defense fleets merging mid-transit as colony after colony fell to the weight of the Federation. Those same formerly friendly people turning cold and hard in the face of war for survival. The galaxy had decided to wage war on Sol and her people. In time, they would learn just why humanity had shaken their nearest neighbors. Barely half a decade after the outbreak of war, a dreadnought breached the Earth perimeter. Panicked by the unexpected defense of human's Iger colony, member worlds had concocted a plan. They would break the spirit of humanity by breaking their hope. Billions died as the gallant fire reigned. The Federation, in their fear, had turned to a heartland of humanity into glass marble. And with it slipped open the gates of hell. Long ago, a lesson had to be learned by all great and powerful species as they vied for dominance of their homelands. A lesson that in time would be forgotten through hubris. A cornered beast will fight with a ferocity yet unseen. A man with nothing left to lose will sacrifice everything for victory. In fear, the Federation had taken the home of humanity. In fear, they had awoken the oldest sins in the hearts of humanity. Wrath had been stirred, and it would not be satisfied. With soul lost, humanity retreated to a strategic system of Iger. Well, the Federation celebrated their apparent retreat of their foe. The humans worked tirelessly. Every man and woman laboring for one goal. Vengeance. In under a year, the secrets of the Star Roads lay bare. And the newest weapon of humanity would be seen. The Shitari home system felt that telling blow first. A great super dreadnought sliding free of a great rift in space-time. Its journey, a Mascar Prime unimpeded as the great human host swarmed across the defensive fleet burning the ships in orbit and swiftly rendering those able to avoid the first barrage into scrap. The galaxy held its breath as the dreadnought engines roared out of the system, as its escorts swarming in its wake. And then the cannon fired. Space and time strained against the stellar shockwave which rushed out pulses rendering the home star a sucking black mass at the center of Shatari space. And every planet a collapsing asteroid field. From their home system, the Tazari and the Silitan could only watch in horror as the Federation fell. Member after member surrendered, forced to watch the most vocal advocates of the war bleed and break as the home systems were reduced to stellar. Waste. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1133. Soldiers and Their Toys, written by Lost Form. Corporate Post watched his fire team with a wary eye as they prepared for the mission. Each member of the squad was getting ready for the impending assault. Lord, please let this mission go smoothly and make sure that Specialist Kellogg doesn't do anything stupid. He prayed silently. 
Smashless Kellogg was busy debasing his assault suit, merely little more than a fancy EVA suit. Corporal Post had to just shake his head at the peace symbol on the specialist was drawing on his chest plate. You know, the captain catches you doing that, he'll have your ass. Especially since even General Mills will be in attendance with the Allied races and their ambassador. Everyone is watching to make sure that we impress our new allies. Not to see how royally you can screw up, Corporal Post observed while thinking, maybe that'll finally free me from the screw-up. Don't worry about it. I already took care of the squad's carers. The captain won't see it, and I'll clean it up after this dog and pony show. Specialist Kellogg replied, never even looking up from whatever else he was drawing. What do you mean? The corporal asked, already knowing he probably didn't want to know. That new guy and I made sure that any attempt to hook into our cameras got rerouted. Just trust me, corporal. Private Kellogg replied with a smile. Corporal Post just shook his head. Let's go along and check on the other three. Kellogg could screw up a wet dream, so no way he rerouted the cameras. This is Private Trix's first mission. Best make sure his suit will even seal. Specialist Graham and Toucan have done this enough that I don't have to worry too much about them. As the corporal approached, he was just in time to see his senior specialist sending a private to ask his squad leader for some gig line. Shaking his head. He couldn't help but think. No wonder they call this team the Fruit Loops. Captain Crunch watched the skeletal assault pods race towards their targets from the drones launched at the same time. Well, I gotta give the flyboys this. That was almost too smooth. Just beyond the engagement range of the Dovac cannons, he had seen a brief flash of the assault pods firing. The ships that had carried them had fired off some torpedoes at the same time. Captain Crunch had been happy to see Dovac point defense was distracted from his boys. Behind him, Captain Crunch could hear General Mills briefing the collected Allied generals and ambassadors. I still can't get used to all of these aliens. They may have better technology, but they are idiots in a fight. The humans were new to the Alliance, having been contracted only because the Allies were struggling against the Dovac. None of these races were as warlike as the reptilian aliens. The best Captain Crunch could do was think of them as birds, the bugs, and the bears. I still can't believe the diplomatic corps was even communicating with them. Those oversized cranes have too many apostrophes in their name and just talk in whistles. The bugs have names that sound like a spoon in the garbage disposal, and a language that matched. Those oversized teddy bears, uh, those little bear-like McFuzzy somethings, uh, are about the only ones I can kind of understand. Captain Crunch thought as he listened to something that sounded vaguely like a one-man band falling down at 3,000 steps of the Burj Khalifa. Captain Crunch realized the human ambassador and General Mills had approached him. Turning to Maester, the ambassador stated, Captain, we are going to share this historic feed with the Alliance. We want to pipe it out to show the value of us as allies, the human ambassador stated. Before Captain Crunch could even reply, General Mills cut him off. Do it, Captain. It's already cleared. With a crisp yes, sir, Captain Crunch turned back to the feed. He was noticing an odd behavior, but the General's command had been clear. Why does every surveillance drone I activate appear to be focused on Corporal Post's squad? 
Knowing there wasn't much he could do about it with all the eyes on him, he silently prayed. Please, don't let these idiots do anything too, stupid. General Moles heard the McFurry something ambassador gasp. I still can't believe these soldiers volunteered to do this. Do they know the risks? The general spared him a glance while cursing the human ambassador for sending the space care bear to watch over his shoulder. Ambassador, I assure you they are all volunteers. Captain Crunch picked each of them personally for this mission. The confused expression on the creature almost made the general laugh. I hope I don't accidentally call this thing Braveheart Lion. They quietly thought as he looked at the spluttering bear-like alien. The cockroach-looking creature next to it started to say something, but was apparently distracted by a feed on the screen. As General Mills looked towards the screens, he could see the Dovac point defense systems were starting to put an impressive light show. The Dovac had almost finished destroying the torpedoes, but seemed unaware of the assault pods. General Mills could only imagine the confusion the Dovac were likely experiencing as to why the human fleet was sitting at range. Revan, the commander of the Dovac warship, the Hunter, watched as the alien warship had unleashed a barrage of torpedoes upon his ship. These new ships are already showing more strategic knowledge than these allies usually do. The use of a picket line and skirmishes was unexpected, he thought as he watched the skirmish line regroup with the fleet. I wonder if this is the new race I heard the prey races had recruited, he guffawed. I almost hope they have a better plan than that if they are to be a challenge. Throughout the command deck, he could hear his officers laughing at his post. Still... Deep down, he felt a nagging doubt. Surely, their allies had warned them that we would shoot down those torpedoes. The range was too far for them to have any hope of getting past the point of fence. Even as he was thinking about this, he sensed the officers suddenly shouted, Sire, we are picking up a strange signal near us. I think it's a drone. The ship's AI has been able to interpret it. it it's an image signal. Brevin felt a chill run through him. Put it on screen. As he gave the command, the hollow display shrunk down to a smaller display size and was replaced by a grainy image. On it, four dark shapes appeared to be floating towards the outside of the ship. Just as Revan was about to say something, the camera zoomed in on one of the figures. He was puzzled by what appeared to be a large yellow circle with what almost appeared to be a face drawn on it. With a sense of dread, he wondered... Why are they floating in the void? Turning to his second-in-command, Sidious, what are they doing? Why do they have soldiers floating in the void? Did we hit one of their ships? He had thought that he'd watched the battle carefully, but perhaps one of the ships in the line had struck a skirmisher. Revan suddenly was getting a sick feeling. Given the size of their fleet, why are they just watching? None of this would have worried him had he thought that one of those peacenik McCloisters was in charge. But these aliens were still unknown. As his reptilian eyes focused on the displays, he listened for his second's response. Sire, they appear to be landing troops on our ship, he reported. 
The second was obviously confused by this approach. It was common knowledge that boarding an enemy ship was tantamount to suicide. As he watched on screen, the black armored form with a smiley face on its back ignited its handheld plasma beam. Feeling a sense of dread, he yelled, They are attacking our ship! Quiet voice of his second responded, How could we respond, sire? Revan realized, with a sense of dread, that there would probably be less than five suits on the ship for traversing the void, and those were built for maintenance. Worse, nothing on the ship was designed to shoot along the hull. As his crew looked at him, he couldn't help but think, What sort of insane species is this? This isn't how you fight in space. Secured on the hull with his mag boots, Corporal Post had to take a minute to appreciate the chaos he and his brethren were causing. Keying up his squad, Look up, boys! They decided to give us a light show. As he surveyed the space around him, he couldn't resist a maniacal smile. The lizards were firing off every weapon they could, randomly, in the hopes to stop the now obvious borders. As their ships drifted out of formation, they were raining fire upon each other in their desperation. Let's light them up, he yelled with glee, as the plasma blade in his suit's glove lit up, extending its red cutting blade. He marveled at how it reflected off the ship around him. He looked to the side in time to see Private Trix plunge his blade into the wall of the vessel near himself, resulting in an almost explosive escape of pressurized gas. Oh, crap! The private yelled as he lost his footing, drifting almost a foot off the deck before he used his suit's small jets to get back on the deck. Careful, Cherry. Hate to lose you already, Specialist Graham yelled. Where's Kellogg? Was as far as Corporal Post got before he suddenly heard Specialist over the radio. Was coming from the radio. Looking over, Corporal Post realized that Specialist Tukan and Kellogg were cutting away at an obvious turret. With a sigh, he keyed the mic. Damn it, Kellogg! They aren't lightsabers! They are plasma blades and keep your sound effects in your own damn head! He didn't want to admit it, but even he couldn't help but admire the way Kellogg pretended to be using the force. Kellogg had finished cutting through the base of the turret and managed to show off an actor-grade force push as he pressurized Hull rocketed into space. Shaking his head, he found himself joining in on the fun. Corporal Post had to go ahead and say, You're still no Jedi, more like a freaking Jar Jar character. That's Darth Jar Jar to you, Corporal, came Gallog's reply. Captain Crunch should have felt great, being ecstatic even at the success of his boarding troops. And were it not for whatever system glitch was keeping the camera focused on the Fruit Loops, might have been. He quickly clicked through cameras 10, 11, and 12. He was getting desperate to find something that showed him anyone other than Specialist Kellogg. Instead, behind him, all he could hear was the Allied ambassadors hammering the human diplomats and General Post with questions. He could almost feel the general's glare on the back of his uniform as he again tried to change the camera and microphone feed. As he looked back, he again tried three more cameras. As cameras 13, 14, and 15 came up, he was again treated to the three more perspectives of Kellogg's graffiti-covered suit. Many of the Dovac ships were visibly losing gases into the void. Debris was raining from the ships in a steady stream. The humans on the house, emboldened by the success, 
were starting to cut into the ships. The video feed from the squad, though, was not helping. Their sound effects and hand motions had convinced the Allied aliens that the humans had a hidden secret telekinetic power. Glancing over his shoulder towards General glaring at him, he cycled three more cameras. As he looked back at the screen to see Kellogg's now familiar suit, the captain grimly thought, I wonder if getting force choked would be as painful as what's going to happen when we leave this room. Specialist Kellogg was ecstatic. He was living the dream. Never in his wildest dreams did he think that he would get to live the power fantasy of his childhood. But here he was, on the hull of an alien ship equipped with an honest-to-God lightsaber. And it actually worked. Looking around, he realized his squad had already made short work of the priority targets, and even caused the main drive of the lizard ship to go offline. He couldn't help but think, I shouldn't have taken out the squad's cameras. It would have been so awesome to have some photos of this. He moved across the lizard ship, no longer the proud warship he had originally landed on. He spotted a crew hatch. With an evil smile, he had an idea. Using his suit's jets, he launched himself at the remaining 20 feet towards the hatch, carefully timing the activation of his saber. He managed to neatly cut the hinges as he landed and yelled, Force! Push! As all of his squad looked his way, he could only imagine how impressive they were to see his hand movement appearing to bring the hatch now rocketing into space as he acted the role. Over the mic, he heard the others in his squad cheer as they emulated his false powers. Damn, I should have kept our cameras working. Footage of this would have been sick. Again, crossed his mind. Now, it was time to coop to Grace. Moving towards the now open hatch, he did his best impersonation of his favorite character from those classic movies. General Mills couldn't see how his situation could get worse politically. Their allies were completely unnerved at the video feed they were getting, and no matter what the captain did, the idiot somehow never managed to change it. To top it all off, no matter how much he tried to explain that these humans were pretending, each glance at the screen just made the situation worse. As the specialist covered in graffiti proceeded to yell, Force push, and pretend to throw a door, one of the living care bears gasped. The bugs and the birds had long since fallen completely silent. He could only imagine the upcoming diplomatic fallout. The slack-jawed look of the Care Bear was enough to make him glad that he wasn't in the diplomatic corps. Just as the general was rubbing his brow and thinking, Can't get any worse. Over the comms of the entire ship, Specialist Kellogg came over the feed in a heavy mechanical breathing. <sighs> I am Darth Vader, you bitches, and I am your father. Krakat of the McCloshtures wrinkled his bear-like face in confusion. Looking at the Clackabrrt and the Spilectalella ambassadors, he could see that they shared his feelings. He had tried to communicate through the translator to the human diplomats and the general to get clarification how those soldiers on the screen could push things in the void without touching them. How they were able to handle simple scraping tools as though they were weapons that they had training with for years. And most importantly, how did they have soldiers related to the Dovaks? Whatever the reason, it was quickly becoming apparent the diplomats and general would not provide the answers he sought. 
Turning towards Luke, the human ambassador, Master Luke, can you explain what we are seeing? Beside him, he knew his fellow diplomats were now looking towards Luke. All were expecting an answer. He felt a wave of relief as Luke gave him a positive smile that he'd learned about and responded, Craig, I know this must be confusing and I hope this does not hurt our relationship. I've just got an authorization to share an entire documentary. Have you ever heard of the Jedi? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1134 Through the Heart, written by Warpmind I'd been hired to deal with the human ambassador. Ambassadors are always tricky. Extensive security personnel, very hard to get close to. Virtually impossible to take out from afar. What with the personnel shielding against rapid kinetics or energy weapons? But I, at the best, and my clients pay for expert services. So I acquiesced to my clients' requirements. The human ambassador, one Conrad Wagner, will die. Finding the anatomical information pertaining to humans was surprisingly easy. Unlike most civilized species, humans don't seem to bother with such petty concerns as keeping their weaknesses a secret. A lot of needlessly hardy and redundant organs, multiple different blood cleansing organs. It seemed uh, two lungs, spinal cord, encased in a calcium structures, bloody death welders, built to last. Ah... There it was. Single heart. Slightly off center in the torso. Perfect. I spent some time in the hollow chamber, perfecting the kill. Arranging a moment away from the gods would be all I needed. And with this practice, I would unerringly aim my cool at the man's heart and see death reflected in his eyes before I would have to flee. Easy enough. Tomorrow, he would be attending a meeting and I would be there to make sure that it was his last. Ambassador Wagner chugged down another viscous liquid with a grimace, letting out a slight cough. Remind me, upon returning to Earth, to indict the bastard in charge of ambassadorial pharmacology. We have two flavors of cough syrup, liquid death and fecking cherry. I hate cherry. Dr. Olson sighed. My apologies, Conrad. There is nothing I can do about that. I put in a requisition, but the round-trip time came in a couple of weeks. I expect you'll be over the cough by then. Now, I'll be in the nearby staff room while you're at the meeting. If you feel any worse, come and see me right away. The infection may be gone, but you're still recovering. And stress can... Wagner snapped. I know, I know... But I'd rather get stabbed than taste that crap again. Dr. Olson smiled wryly, fishing up a syringe and a small bottle from his kit. Could be arranged. Your B-12 shot is coming up soon, in any case. Wagner disglanded him, turned in his heel, and stalked towards the meeting room. I could barely believe my luck. The ambassador had recently suffered some infection and might need to leave the meeting room, and the guards were posted away from the meeting room itself, in the staff room. They'd be able to react to shouting, but with the slightest amount of luck, the ambassador would have no time nor breath to shout. 
I could not have planned it better. Disguised as embassy staff, setting up refreshments, I tampered with the air conditioning, lowering the air moisture in the meeting room. Unlike the human, the other species present were from drier worlds and so would not be bothered by dry air. But the human's respiratory system would. Enough, I'd wager, to induce an irritation to his already weakened respiratory system and send him to his physician. I just had to linger outside the meeting room and wait. Wagner listened to the Lysel ambassador drone on. The reptilian-looking species had found that Mars apparently had a suitable soil quality for their species and wanted to find something humanity would want in exchange for the desert world. He coughed into his hand, frowned, and then coughed again. Yes, Ambassador Wagner, was there something you wished to address? Wagner shook his head, coughed once more. My apologies, no, I seem to... <coughs> the air is a bit too dry, I think. Uh, I think, um, if you'll pardon me, I need, I need a moment to speak to my personal physician. If you'd not mind raising the air moisture level a little in my absence, I'd consider it a personal favor. The Lysel seemed to perk up, eyeing an opportunity. Gas Ambassador Wagner, I'll see to it right away. As Wagner left the room, the Lysel was almost climbing across the table to get to the AC controls. The Ambassador left the room alone, as I anticipated, before he even realized I was there. I stepped up and laid my hand against the left side of his chest and a quill of my wrist shooting out and going straight through his torso. Poking out the back for a brief moment. He stared at me in pure surprise, coughed for a moment. Then his eyes flashed with uh, rage. He gripped my arm with both of his, with a strength that couldn't be possible once his heart was pierced. He should be unconscious in seconds and brain dead in minutes and yet... Uh, what in the name of the hand was going on? Wagner felt the cool go straight to his chest, the shock making him stagger for a moment. Then he reflexively gripped the assassin's arm and started to squeeze as adrenaline flooded his system. The feck assassin! He felt the arm dislodge the cool and pull away, and started bending it sideways with a sneer. Oh, not getting away, you son of a bitch! The ambassador jerked me off balance as I released the quill, and within seconds, a very large fist impacted with my head. The guards were quicker than I expected at the sound of struggle, and there came the damnable position too. Though he'd not likely have the necessary surgical tools for the barbaric human practice they called heart surgery here, I accomplished my mission, even if I was caught. Then another fist impacted my head and everything turned to darkness. So, going through your files to determine who your client was. So far, we've tracked payment through half a dozen intermediaries, but our digital forensics teams are very good at what they do. Having caught you alive was certainly a boon, though. I grinned weakly. It doesn't matter. My life is forfeit, but your precious ambassador is dead. Whatever my client hoped to achieve will come to pass, regardless of whether or not you eventually find them. The investigator arched an eyebrow at me. That's a bold assumption. I shook my head hardly. Even with the doctor unseen so quickly, humans cannot survive an impaled heart for more than a few minutes. 
is dead. The door opened behind me, and a chill went through my body as the last voice I'd been expecting to hear raged out. Actually, uh, if you hadn't stabbed me, I would be dead soon. I owe you my life. I tried in vain to turn around to look at the man who entered. Ambassador Wagner stepped around my chair and sat down to face me. Funny thing, when the surgeons began to patch up my lung, they found a tiny growing tumor, a cancerous lump that was both extremely new and extremely aggressive, most likely caused by the recent bout of pneumonia, but wouldn't have shown up in scans that I had done while dealing with that. They did get it out, and I'm on quite aggressive monitoring to make sure that it doesn't come back. But if not for that implement of yours, I would have been dead in over, perhaps two months. So, um, thank you. I suppose there's a bit of sweet irony in knowing that in your attempt, you saved your last victim's life. He got up to leave, and I stammered out, How? My, my aim is perfect. I pierced the least one of your heart chambers. Maybe two. You cannot still be walking around, let alone be alive. Dark sorcery is this human? What deceit is in your files? My rage grew along with my professional dignity. What manner of cheating does your species use when all your own documents state that a human would survive a punctured heart? He stopped. I came back to look me in the eye. Oh, that, um, almost any other man, and you'd have succeeded. I have a rare mutation called Cytus Invertus, not something that's common knowledge. He grinned cruelly, and since that was one of our dead languages, not in the commonly available auto-translator files, you're going to have a lot of time wondering what the hell that actually means. He coughed as he left, and I could hear his doctor's voice in the corridor. I hope that was worth it, Conrad. You really should be resting. Here, for the cough. The ambassador let out a displeased noise. Fucking cherry flavor again, isn't it? A gulp followed by a gaggy noise, and the doctor's feigned innocence. No, you complained so much last time, so this time it's liquid death flavor. I guess neither of us have their heart in the right place. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1135 Human's Gift from the future, or, uh, when it comes to time travel, you technically want to be second. Written by Devil Duck. Humanity is a remarkable species. They are technically the youngest species in the galaxy. Yes, you read that right. Not sentient species, just species in general. Additionally, they are the only species who have a recorded history of their entire evolutionary process and the only species to have colonized Andromeda galaxy, apparently. They have plans for a call that they don't want to test uh, locally. They didn't mean to invent time travel. It just happened to be a consequence of their FTL design. The way they tell the story, and believe me, they love telling the story. It happens relatively early in the evolution, approximately 7,500 human years after they began keeping records in the form of marks in dried mud. They were already capable of near-light-speed travel thanks to their soliton drive. The soliton used massive amounts of energy to create a rotating bubble of warped space-time, allowing the void ships to fall towards the direction they wanted to go. 
A solid and dry with a clever enough AI could reach speeds just under 2% of the speed of light. Not blindingly fast on the cosmic scale. But they got their foot in the door, as the humans say. While sending probes out to other star systems, they discovered their first naturally occurring wormhole. It was a short, fat, kind of donut-shaped hole in reality. It was all by itself in the middle of a deep space, but it was there. So the humans descended upon it in droves. They froze their bodies and sent ships full of scientists and engineers from all disciplines to flesh out this brand new science. They learned this standalone wormhole was a branch from a larger network that had been severed and looped back upon itself. Then they discovered the hyperdrive lanes that permeate the galaxy, left over from her birth and kept alive by a supermassive black hole at her heart. They learned how to slip into these lanes and travel to any other location in the network at exactly the speed of light. The speed of light isn't all that fast on a galactic scale, seeing how end-to-end trip would take over a hundred thousand years. But there were 133 stars within 50 light years of their origin planet, meaning a colony could be sent out and a message received upon its arrival within one human lifespan. So they spread. They leapt out into the galaxy, in search of new planets, new homes, new resources, new sites, and new hopes. Their population exploded, and so did their research and technology. It did not take them long to figure out that they could create standalone wormholes of their own and keep them open at both ends, effectively creating instant warp gates. This would be a game changer. It no longer mattered that you couldn't go faster if you could just travel the short distance. They prepared warp gates near the origin star and their nearest neighbor, Proxima Centauri, and began pruning the network to allow the gates to stay open. Then, they turned it on. It worked. There was now a wormhole between Sol and Proxima Centauri. But to their horror, the damage they did to the local hyperspace network was extensive. Their forethought to separate the warp gates from the main hyperspace network was insightful. However, they didn't realize the extent the lanes were interconnected. Thousands of minuscule branches reached out across the network like capillaries connecting a larger veins and arteries. They simply couldn't prune all the connections. And a large swath of nearby hyperspace collapsed, cutting off hyperspace travel for all along its route. Earth and Artemis would never again be able to see their brothers and sisters amongst the stars. However, at the exact moment three ships fell out of hyperspace at Sol, before they left Proxima Centauri. It took a while before anyone noticed a discrepancy. The first ship suffered a total systems failure and recorded no data from hyperspace travel. The second ship saw all the commotion at the warp gate and took off as quickly as possible, not wanting to deal with the paperwork. But the third ship, well, that third ship was piloted by Acting Ensign Walker of the Artemis Colony Command Trading Program who dutifully noted their time of arrival in a redundant paper logbook, using his analog watch when the ship's system failed. Eight years later, acting Ensign Walker made a notation in his ship's log indicating his arrival at Sol from Proxima Centauri, and the computer flagged it as a double entry. 
Once the humans knew what happened, it was only a short matter of time before they replicated it. They sacrificed more of their hyperspace lanes to make it happen. But if they cracked time travel, it wouldn't really matter. Causality be damned, they would go headlong into the unknown. Earth and Artemis pulled together and came up with a simple plan. Seed the galaxy with warp gates in the deep past. Far enough into the past that by the time they evolve, they will have all been in place and ready to be turned on. They figured if they couldn't safely prune the hyperspace network to selectively use it for warp gates, then they would just use all of it at once. Waste not, why not? So, the humans did. They designed a network of wormholes that would allow free travel throughout the galaxy, even at sublight speeds. To ensure that they would understand the devices when they came across them again, they populated the data cores of warp drives with an AI to act as a teacher and a guide. She contained all the information the human species had ever connected, and she was tasked with helping them through their ascension. They created fleets of unhuman probes and sent them out into the distant pass, which arrived in a young, milky way. Eons before they were created, they set to the task of replicating, spreading, and building warp gates. These gates were spread across the hyperspace network near the stars of planets and the humans hoped would someday harbor intelligent life. These gates, once constructed, sat quietly for tens of thousands of years before they were rediscovered. Then they confirmed the multiverse theory. Causality doesn't like being broken. No one in the universe is privileged with the center. So, when the humans broke causality by making three Voidcraft arrive before they left, causality did the only thing she could, branch off into a new universe and break the connection. In one universe, the humans sent knowledge to someone else's past. In another universe, the humans woke up to that knowledge, but they weren't the first to find it. A young species was inspired by the oddly reflective asteroid they discovered through their newly invented telescopes. It fascinated scientists for years. Why does that asteroid orbit at such an odd inclination to the solar plane? Is it magic? Is it God? Is it aliens? These questions drove that species to tackle the challenges of their time and rise up as one to conquer spaceflight, to understand that which is unknown. That is what led them to discover humanity before they existed. That is what led me to discover you. You are a fascinating species, or rather, judging from the internal clocks and your warp gates, will be a fascinating species. We are a man of house Gib. We have now been walking the galaxy for hundreds of thousands of years alone. Your AI, Charlie, has no record of us in her memory and can only assume that in your other timeline, we are extinct. Those humans looked at the multiverse in the eyes and did not blink. They sacrificed their remaining hyperspace lanes to ensure that someone, somewhere, a version of themselves would continue on, unhindered by the burdens of physics and unafraid of the loneliness in the void. We can't wait to thank you in person. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. 
Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.